it's really filled with hilarious weirdos uh, like the three that are sitting in this room. And uh, we hope that uh, more people join and uh, head over to kickstandcomedy.org slash classes if you think that an improv class or a stand-up or sketch class could be fun. We've all done them here in this room. I love them. Great stuff. It, uh, I mentioned earlier that it helped me conquer my very real stage fright. Mm-hmm. And now I feel pretty comfy in front of people That's and right. audiences. And I'd I like to add that part of why I got into improv is because I saw Broke Gravy perform Ooh, at my college. Yeah. That's awesome. So Full circle. Full, Full circle. circle. And they're uh, doing a show tonight at Kickstand. That's right. Pre-sales are sold out, but we'll have limited ticks available at the door. Oh, very good. Um, real quick, we want to say that you are listening to X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM, and in Nehalem, Wheeler, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach at 91.7 FM. Streaming online everywhere at X-Ray.FM. Radio is yours. It's yours, Thea. And, and mine. Yours. And yours. Hey, thank you. Land six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, excited to all get together for the heist this week. That's so right. We're really again. excited about this heist. It's going to be good. It's going to be a so. good heist. It's going to be a good heist. It's going to be a good heist. Um, well, I just got to play my turn here in Scrabble on my mm-hmm. phone. And looks like I got Ooh. a hot date tonight in the messages. <laughs> Until next week, we'll see y'all. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. We have been Kickstand Comedy kicking off your weekend. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Spielman Bagels and Coffee. Opened by Rick Spielman and his son, Raph, Spielman has been serving handmade boiled and baked bagels and coffee since 2011. Their flagship store can be found on Southeast 21st and Division, or find one of their other shops on Northwest 23rd and Lovejoy, Northeast 22nd and Broadway, or in Multnomah Village.
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, f- Shabbat Shalom, Juma Mabadik. Happy Friday, TGIF. It's the end of the week. It's Anything Goes Friday. Uh, we do have a couple of uh, quick guests that we're going to uh, have throughout the program today, but, uh, you know, it's also uh, time for whatever's on your mind that may not have anything to do with the topics of the day. I want to get into a, a few topics, though, today. Why are Republicans fiddling with fascism while the shutdown is looming? Also, if Trump gets a second term, be worried. And if a bunch of independents like Joe Manchin and Jill Stein jump in that erode the Democratic vote, be very worried. And crazy authoritarian alert, is Donald Trump thinking about Tucker Carlson as vice president? In the second hour of the program, Steve Simon, the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court uh, discusses the insurrection or dismisses the insurrection clause. Steve Simon is the Minnesota Secretary of State and vice chair of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. Mike Johnson wants to end your right to birth control. Oh, and by the way, uh, Oregon is going to ignore the Constitution and the, and the abortion vote, or at least the, Democrat, or the Republicans say, yes, we're going to ignore it. Are you surprised? And more than 60 mayors have asked for an assault weapons ban. I'll tell you about that in the second hour also. In the third hour of our program, world population hits 8 billion, and we're all living on ancient sunlight. Also, geeky science. Only do what you're good at, and don't feel guilty about not doing what you're not good at. And Jacob Patterson is going to drop by about the Portland teachers' strike. What does this tell us about the, the labor movement nationally and, you know, what's going on here in Portland as well? So, to start out, uh, MAGA Mike uh, closed Congress yesterday. He's on his way right now to France, where he is going to be speaking at a uh, hardline right-wing event in Paris, uh, bringing together a Republicans, it's, it's a, gr- a, a, call, a group called Republicans Overseas, and they're hosting the World Freedom Initiative uh, today and tomorrow in Paris. And uh, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem will be there. Uh, right-wing uh, West Virginia Congressman Alex Mooney will be there. Donald Trump campaign manager David Bossy will be there. Um, and then a bunch of right-wingers from France and Hungary. I mean, these are, these are the fascism and fascism-adjacent crowd. People from Hungary, you know, representing Viktor Orban. Some of the topics that they'll be discussing, myths of the Green New Deal, uh, alternative visions for a better future. Ah, how about a fascist state? Strategies to set up winning election campaigns. Campaign manager secrets, social media, government interference, the future of elections, illegal immigration, wokeism. The the guy who's opening the conference, uh, his name is Eric Zemmour, was convicted of hate speech recently. He's opening the conference today. And the person closing the conference will be Kristi Noem, the South Dakota uh, governor. And, uh, you know, so the question I'm asking is, why are Republicans fiddling with fascism while a government shutdown is looming? Uh, You know, Mike, MAGA Mike yesterday when he closed Congress, when he closed the House, uh, failed to get two essential spending bills through. One was a bill that would have, a transportation bill that would have gutted Amtrak. Uh, A couple of East Coast Republicans objected. And the other, funding government operations and the oversight of banks, went down in flames because it had a draconian anti-abortion provision built into it. And the election Tuesday seems to have spooked Republicans in the House. Just a week earlier, Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott, you know, the guy who 
paid a $1.7 billion, well, his company paid a $1.7 billion fine for the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States. That guy, the guy who walked away from that company with hundreds of millions of dollars, he has endorsed Donald Trump. Now, why would anybody in their right mind at this point in time endorse Donald Trump? when he's coming right out and saying that on his first day in office he's going to declare martial law he's going to pull the insurrection act and he's going to arrest joe biden and other democrats and put him in prison why would anybody vote for somebody who is openly nakedly proudly proclaiming that he's going to be a fascist leader well in my opinion these stories are all connected these are all essentially the same thing um, you ask you know why are the republicans in the house and senate becoming so unable or unwilling to do the nation's business I think it's that they want the chaos that they're creating. They want the government defaults. They want the mass shooters. They want the fights on the school boards and city councils. They want the racist, anti-Semitic, and, and homophobic vigilantes. They think it's all going to work to their advantage. None of this is accidental. They think it'll discourage voters by amplifying Americans' cynicism and discouragement, making it easier for them to take over. Rick Scott is betting that when Donald Trump becomes president, he will embrace Rick Scott and the other morbidly rich people like Rick Scott. Rick Scott is not quite a billionaire, but you know he, he kind of represents the class. He and his billionaire buddies who are supporting Trump—they're just you know—they're betting that when Trump becomes president, they will they will escape unscathed. If anything, that they will you know be well thought of. The billionaires and the CEOs funding the Republicans in Congress think the same thing. They think they're invisible. They think the Republican embrace of fascism to replace democracy uh, is going to keep them safe. And they're wrong. I mean, in 1980, David Koch ran for president uh, or vice president on the libertarian ticket on a platform of ending Social Security and Medicare, gutting all federal support for education, health and uh, health care and welfare programs. And, and, you know, shutting down big government. Reagan won the election that year because he cut a deal with the Iranians to hold the hostages to screw Jimmy Carter. But David Koch's worldview took over the Republican Party in 1980. And over the last 42 years, Reaganomics has moved 60,000 factories and nearly 20 million good-paying manufacturing jobs overseas. It's cut taxes on billionaires to the point where they only pay 3.4% income tax when they pay anything at all. Trump paid only 750 bucks a year for decades. Reagan's policies destroyed the American Union movement. He stole, well, Republicans, billionaires, stole $51 trillion from working class people over a 42-year period, putting almost every penny of it into the money bins of the morbidly rich. This was actually part of the plan, devastating the middle class, cutting us from 60% down to 43% of us, the Republicans are trying to harness the outrage people are feeling, and they want to use it to tear our society apart. And out of this chaos, they believe that they can rebuild America on a foundation of hyper-masculinity, racism, religious bigotry, misogyny, homophobia, and threats of violence. You know, these are the weapons that every fascist leader in history has used, from Mussolini to Hitler to Putin. And they were first heavily, every single one of these guys were first heavily supported by the morbidly rich in their own countries. Those people, those wealthy people, thought that they could control the madman. Well, pro tip, you can't control the madman. I've told you before about Fritz Tyson, the guy who wrote the book, and I think it was published in the early 1940s. 
but it was called I Paid Hitler. My dad gave me a copy of it for my 21st birthday 51 years ago, and uh, which is, you know, cool collector's item because they're selling for hundreds of dollars now. But anyway, it lays out the story of how Fritz Tyson personally convinced uh, Prime Minister or Chancellor Hindenburg or whatever his title was to make Hitler the chancellor and raise the Nazi party's first three million Reichsmarks to, to fund their campaign to win that election in 1933. And at first, Tyson got along with Hitler. He thought he was influencing Hitler. But then he started criticizing Hitler, and suddenly Fritz Tyson and his family had to flee Germany for their lives. Fascist play for keeps. Just ask the four dead police officers from January 6th. Just ask the thousand children who are still, or the families of the thousand children, or the kids themselves for that matter, who were torn apart from their parents at the border and are still missing because they were trafficked into these so-called Christian adoption schemes. Once fascists acquire power, they almost never relinquish it. And when they do, when they, when they are defeated, like Hitler was in the 1920s when he was sent in prison, and Trump in 2020, when they come back, they're seeking revenge and they're twice as deadly. Now, Johnson and the House Republicans are making the same bet that the morbidly rich are making, that you know, Trump will not come after them. And they naively believe that Trump actually cares about unborn children, budget deficits, and drag queen story hour. All he cares about is money and power. And the same with the billionaires who surround him. So what I'm saying is it can happen here. And you know, we need to wake the hell up and, and you know, get ready. Because it's going to take a lot of us waking up to what's going on, to this Republican embrace of, naked embrace of fascism. And getting all of our friends, everybody we know, registered to vote and when the went to over the next 12 months. I hope you'll join me. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 16 minutes past the hour. Good effing riddance to Joe effing Manchin. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. And welcome back. Chris in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Chris in Littleton, Colorado? Yeah, hello, Tom. Hey, Chris, you're on the air. What's up? We we are facing severe climate disaster. The only solution is to stop using fossil fuels. XL Energy has plans to build three new fossil fuel-powered gas power plants in Colorado. Oh, my. This will, this will guarantee fossil fuel prop, billionaire profits it will also guarantee climate disaster for the citizens. Is there any pushback? Uh, yeah, well, um, Wednesday, November 15th at noon at the Colorado State Capitol, there's going to be a protest. So and that's, uh, oh, is that next Wednesday? That's next Wednesday, right? Next, yeah, next Wednesday, November yeah. 15th at noon, Colorado State Capitol. Mm-hmm. And I think... I don't know. I I just heard about it, so I don't know how much how much pushback there's going to be yet. Yeah. Well, I wish you the very best with that. Good luck, Chris. Yeah. 
Okay, and thanks for the heads up. I appreciate that too. Larry in Hazel Green, Alabama. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Good morning. Hey, Larry. Uh, I wanted to talk about greed. Okay. I was out back uh, looking at my bird feeder, and a bird came and ate its fill, went off to a nearby tree, and then a second bird came of the same species. And the first bird chased the second bird away from the feeder. And I got to thinking, that must be a, an <laughs> instinct. Yeah. You yeah. know, in a world of scarcity, that would improve in, uh, survival. Right, protect your food uh, supply. Right, and I wondered if we have the same kind of instinct built into some of us. Oh, count on it. And, and that's why, you know, so many Native societies... Um, actually, and, and, and what Jesus was advocating as well, actually built, you know, kind of a moral code uh, into their law that, that punished people who were greedy. Well, if we look at the people who are greedy, people like uh, Charles Koch, I'm sure he really doesn't worry about how much he pays in payroll taxes. You know, that's, yeah. that's nothing. Even as an employer, it's very small. But why wanting to kill those programs? And maybe it's just that he has an instinct not to acquire that which he covets, but to deny it to Tom Hartman. Yeah, it's possible. I, I think that the that there, there there's you know this whole libertarian ideology that, that Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman were pushing back in the fifties, uh, you know, is has been adopted by people like I believe like Charles Koch. You know, the, the idea that um, you know, people should do things for themselves. They shouldn't rely on government. Uh, you know, we are not a social animal. We are not here for each other. I am not my brother's keeper. You know, these are very appealing ideas to very selfish people. And, and you know, one of the things we know is the richer people get, the more selfish and sociopathic they become. Yes, and they want more than they could ever use. Yep. So I'm thinking if we look at it from the standpoint that they want to deny things to others, uh, that that might be a genetic disorder that we could treat. Yeah, I agree. And that society should figure out ways to deal with. Well, Larry, thank you. Spot on. And in fact, I think that, you know, America was with you in the 1930s. You know, we saw greed prevail in 1932 and it crashed the economy, or 1929. And uh, so people embraced Franklin Roosevelt. We'll be right back. Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. So Vivek Ramaswamy, during the uh, first Republican debate, was laying out his vision for America in, and by the way, he was the number two guy in the debate, according to the Washington Post, in which he was arguing that we should basically do away with all of our federal agencies. Really, uh, virtually all of them. Just, just shut them down and make them go away. He's not the first person to argue this. David Koch, running on the Libertarian ticket in 1980 for vice president, was arguing the same thing. He had a long list of federal agencies he wanted to shut down. This is not an uncommon thing among billionaires, and Ramaswamy is a billionaire. Uh, you know, they basically want to take America back to the 1920s before we had what they call the welfare state. And if they do so, they will turn America into a failed state. They want to make America into, into something like Haiti or Libya, and that would be a disaster. 
There's a whole article about it that you can read all the details. It's titled, Is Vivek Ramaswamy a Different Kind of Republican Cat? At HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back. Uh, the uh, headline for Jeff Tiedrich's uh, uh, newsletter today is, uh, and, and just, you know, a brilliant one. I, I, I won't say all the words because you can't say them on the radio, but good effing riddance to Joe effing mansion is his headline. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's pointing out, and I think, you know, absolutely correctly, that, you know, if, if Trump gets a second term, look out. Uh, well, Manchin's not pointing that out. He's, uh, what uh, Jeff Tiedrich is pointing out is that Joe Manchin, has, who is now saying, I'm not going to run for re-election. Instead, he's going to put his toe in the water about a national presidential run with the no labels brand. I mean, he's not saying that out loud, but everybody gets it that that's what's going on. No labels run by a bunch of ex-Democratic strategists who are fired by the Clintons who hate Democrats. And Joe Lieberman, who is one of the one of the least ethical and honest politicians, in my experience, in, uh, in the history of the Democratic Party, uh, or at least the modern Democratic Party, uh, you know, his, his complete betrayal of, of the Democratic Party over the years. Um, but anyhow, I, you know, I think that these guys, they just love the idea of Republicans being in office. So the average Senate Democrat votes against their party 1.7% of the time. Joe Manchin votes, voted 60 times against the Democrats uh, in the last Congress. That's 19.9%, almost 20% of the time. Um, he, in recent months, when he, when he voted to end the child tax credit, he voted with the Republicans. He said that he wanted to do that because uh, uh, people would use, uh, use the money to buy drugs instead of support their kids. Uh, when he said that when he voted against paid leave, paid sick time and, and, uh, and paid leave time, he said that uh, West Virginians will abuse paid leave uh, to use it to go hunting during deer season. Right. Uh, last year, child poverty hit a historic low of 5.2%. It's now back up to 12.4%. Why? Because the child tax credit expired. Why did it expire? In part because Joe Manchin voted against it. Democrats wanted a clean energy standard that would pay electric utilities to reduce use of coal. Uh, Manchin opposed the measure, so it got scrapped. Joe Manchin was the deciding vote when Lisa Murkowski said, I will not vote for Brett Kavanaugh for beer bong Brett, blackout Brett. They needed a Democrat to vote no to and that uh, or, uh, you know, to vote for blackout Brett. And Joe Manchin was the guy. You can thank him for that. And, of course, he loves the filibuster. It's incredible. I mean, this is, this is uh, very troubling, very troubling. And now we've got Jill Stein, who was going to be the campaign manager, uh, you know, uh, on, on the Green Party for Cornell West. And then Cornell West went off to another third party. And so now Jill Stein has said, oh, I'm going to run again. And again, let me point out, if you add up, Jim, Jill, the, the votes that Jill Stein pulled in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania were greater than the margin by which Joe Biden lost in each one of those states. In other words, if Jill, Jill Stein had not been on the ballot and the people who voted for her had voted for a Democrat, and the odds are quite high that that would have been the case for at least a significant majority of them, then you would, and this was in the 2016 election, then we would have had President Hillary Clinton. And Jill Stein is looking to repeat this. 
And now on top of this, Donald Trump says, well, yeah, I'd consider Tucker Carlson as my running mate. Now, the leading contenders are Christy Nome, South Dakota governor, who's in Paris today talking to a group of fascists. And uh, Carrie Lake, the failed Arizona uh, candidate, gubernatorial candidate, who keeps insisting that her election was stolen. And then when she lost another, like, oh, that election was stolen, too. That they're all, they're all, and anytime a Republican loses, it's because the election was stolen, don't you know? But anyhow, uh, Trump was on a uh, right-wing talk show yesterday, and he said, I like Tucker a lot. I think I'd say I w would. He's talking about having him as vice president, because he's got great common sense. This is the Tucker Carlson who was promoting the Great Replacement Theory, openly promoting it, that Jews are paying to, to businesses to replace white workers with black people. Thus, the people in Charlottesville the ch chanting, Jews will not replace us. This is Tucker Carlson promoting this white nationalist conspiracy theories. You know, fawning over, uh, Tucker Carlson fawning over Trump on the air and then privately in the background saying, sending text messages saying, I hate him with a passion. You know, one of the <laughs> hypocrisy, I, I, it, it's just incredible. And then, of course, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Mike Johnson's vote on birth control. This is a bizarre story. I'll tell you about that on the other on, at the at the top of the next hour. I'll pick up your I'll pick up your calls right after this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. It's anything goes Friday. What's on your mind? I'll pick up your calls right after this break. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading today from Rebooting the American Dream, from the introduction. It's titled Back to the Future. On April 14th, 1789, George Washington was out walking through the fields at Mount Vernon, his home in Virginia, when Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, rode up on horseback. Thompson had a letter for Washington from the President Pro Tem of the new constitutionally created United States Senate telling Washington that he'd just been elected president and the inauguration was set for April 30th in the nation's capital, New York City. This created two problems for George Washington. The first was saying goodbye to his 82-year-old mother, which the 57-year-old Washington did that night. She gave him her blessing and told him it was the last time he'd see her alive as she was gravely ill, and indeed she died before he returned from New York. The second problem was finding a suit of clothes made in the United States of America. For that, he sent a courier to his old friend and fellow general from the American Revolutionary War, Henry Knox. Washington couldn't find a suit made in America because in the years prior to the American Revolution, the British East India Company, whose tea was thrown into the Boston Harbor by outraged colonists after the Tea Act of 1773 gave the world's largest transnational corporation a giant tax break, but the, Boston, the British East India Tea Company controlled the manufacture and the transportation of a whole range of goods including fine clothing. Cotton and wool could be grown and sheared in the colonies, but it had to be sent to England to be turned into clothing. This was a routine policy for England, and it's why until India achieved its independence in 1947, Mahatma Gandhi, who was assassinated a year later, sat at his spinning wheel for his lectures and daily spun clothing in his own home. 
It was, like his salt march, a protest against the colonial practices of England and an entreaty to his fellow Indians to make their own clothes to gain independence from British companies and institutions, even though making their own clothes or making their own salt was against British law. Fortunately for George Washington, an American clothing company had been established on April 28, 1783 in Hartford, Connecticut, by a man named Daniel Hinsdale. And it produced high-quality woolen and cotton clothing, as well as items made from imported silk. It was to Hinsdale's company that Knox turned, and he helped Washington get, in time for his inauguration two weeks later, a nice, but not excessively elegant, brown American-made suit. He wore British black later for the celebration and the most famous painting, but he was sworn in wearing an American-made suit. When Washington became president in 1789, most of America's personal and industrial products of any significance were manufactured in England or in other British colonies. Washington asked his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, what could be done about that, and Hamilton came up with an 11-point plan to foster American manufacturing, which he presented to Congress in 1791. By 1793, most of its points had either been made into law by Congress or formulated into policy by either President Washington or the various states, which put our country on a path of developing its industrial base and generating the largest source of federal revenue for more than 100 years. Those strategic proposals built the greatest industrial powerhouse the world had ever seen. And after more than 200 successful years, Alexander Hamilton's program was only abandoned during the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and remained abandoned to this day. Modern-day China, however, implemented most of Hamilton's plan uh, just in the 1990s, and has brought about a remarkable transformation of its nation in a single generation. Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers is a primary inspiration for this book. It was part of a larger work titled Alexander Hamilton's Report on the Subject of Manufacturers Made in His Capacity as Secretary of the Treasury. It's the official title. And then I I list Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers. And I'll share just the the headlines of this He starts out by saying, a full view now having been taken of the inducements to the promotion of manufacturers in the United States, in other words, why we should do this, accompanied with an examination of the principal objections, which are commonly urged in opposition. This was uh, Jefferson's objection that he didn't want America to be a manufacturing nation. He wanted us to be an agricultural nation. Uh, Hamilton says, it is proper in the next place to consider the means by which it may be effected. So here he says, in order to to a better judgment of the means proper to be presented to the United States, it will be of use to advert to those which have been employed with success in other countries. In other words, we're stealing this idea from England. It was called the Tudor Plan when King Henry VII came up with it. So number one, protecting duties, import taxes, now called tariffs, or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of domestic ones intended to be encouraged. So number one, raise the cost of imported goods. Number two, Prohibition of rival articles or duties equivalent to prohibitions. On some things that we think it's really important to make in America, make the duties, the the tariffs, so high that nobody would want to import them, so there'll be a strong domestic manufacturing presence. Three, prohibitions on the exportation of materials of manufacture. Why provide raw materials to other countries, like we're doing right now to China, to make stuff to sell back to us when we can simply make it here, manufacture it here? Number four, pecuniary bounties. This is one one of the most efficacious means of encouraging manufacturers, basically, you know, subsidizing uh, growing and new nascent industries. 
So that's just up to number four. There are 11 points. The rest of it's all in the book, Rebooting the American Dream. And you can find it online. Did you know that every weekday we send out an email before the show giving you all the topics coming up so you could be fully informed and ready to interact with our program? Or that after the show we send out Sue's Stack, a list of every topic I've discussed along with clickable hot links to every source of information I've shared with you on the air? It's all completely free and available over at tom.tv, T-H-O-M TV. Check it out. And welcome back. Picking up your calls here on Anything Goes Weekend. Scott in Oakland, California. Hey, Scott, what's up? Hey, Tom. So thanks for taking my call. I'm calling about the three cases uh, to deny Donald Trump the ballot in 2024. What is it? Colorado, Minnesota, and Michigan? Yeah. Minnesota has been, uh, I believe, has been decided where they sort of punted. The, I think the, the, the idea was that uh, he hadn't been, uh, Trump had not been found guilty of any crime yet. So they couldn't go forward. They're sort of waiting on Jack Smith's case. I want right. to point We're going to have the Minnesota Secretary of State on at the top of the next hour. Right. The founding of the 14th Amendment, which is what this is based on, Thaddeus Stevens, the great Thaddeus Stevens, the father of the 14th Amendment. Mm hmm third section in his introduction in Congress to this, he said, quote, I know there is a morbid sensibility, sometimes called mercy, which affects a few of all classes from the priest to the clown, which has more sympathy for the murderer on the gallows than for the vic this victim. I hope I have a heart as capable of feeling for human woes as others. I've long since wished that capital punishment were abolished, but I never dreamed that all punishment could be dispensed with in human society. I put this out to Colorado and Michigan. Mm -hmm. Think, think. Yeah. This man cannot be allowed. He has, he has violated the 14th Amendment. He has violated the Constitution. He must not be allowed on the ballot. And the great Thaddeus Stevens, the great Thaddeus Stevens is speaking to us from 150 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Said, That's second that point. Can I can I bring this up right quick? You mentioned. Um, uh, Fritz Tyson and and mm -hmm. the the the, uh, the industrialist uh, buyer's remorse in Nazi Germany. One of the things that happened in the uh, the Weimar Republic was the ultra left and the ultra right combined to take out the middle. Okay, because they each thought that once they took out the middle, they could deal with their true enemies, which were each other. Okay, the the middle was stand the middle was in their way. So I see the same thing happening with the. Um, Israeli and Hamas uh, uh, war, Gaza, war in Gaza. The guy that's the big problem here, the guy that's the big problem is their uh, their security chief. His name is Itamar Ben-Gavir. This guy is a psycho. Um, I know that Netanyahu is going to go after this, but this other guy, Ben-Gavir, has got to go as well. He has to be mm. out I think that Netanyahu is toast here. I, I don't know anything about the guy that you're mentioning, but you know, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, uh, Scott, thanks for the call. Jerry in Ontario, California. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? I, I want to talk to you about this label that was behind a guy, I think his name was Folder, when, during the pandemic, the fruit label from uh, California about marvelous pears. 
it, it's the name of the label was Life. Okay. And it had this trout stream, and this stream actually runs into the river at Walnut Grove, where this packing shed was. This guy catching the trout in this in this stream. So I I had that label. So I put a kind of a political statement on the back, and I tell people, you know, read the back, frame the front. But it's this pear and this water life is the perfect fruit to be dried because it's picked green and ripened with the ethylene gas like a pippin apple. Right. So what's your point, Jerry? What am I missing here? This is what I'm saying. I sold them to a friend of mine who rode his bike up to 100 miles a day, and he said, of all the food bars and dried fruit, the Bartlett's don't slow me down because they're totally pre-digested. Uh-huh. Okay, so, you know, good. All right. I, I just, I still don't get why I'm, why I'm hearing that, but it's fascinating. Uh, Cliff in Santa Clarita. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today? Uh, good day, Tom. I'm going to steer away from politics pretty much, except to say that um, how disappointed I am that this Willow Project is going forward up in Alaska. Yeah. I, I share um, your disappointment. I know you do. Anyways, Tom, I'm really fascinated with evolution especially involving our solar system. Like, to the best of my knowledge, everything has an origin. So what's the origin of matter that makes up our universe? We have trillions of stars and planets and galaxies. I mean, how did it all begin? But, uh, but what I'm calling about is more of a philosophical question, Tom. Since humans arrived on this planet, which I don't know how that happened, was it primordial ooze or we evolved from simians, whatever, humans have contributed much to the benefit of this planet. We've made great discoveries, inventions, inventions. we've cured diseases, um, indoor plumbing, you know, before rubber, tires were wood and steel or whatever. But I weigh that against the harm that we've done, Tom, the, dis- the, the diseases we've created, the destruction of the environment, nuclear weapons, the warming of the planet, forever chemicals. I could go on. I want to know if you have a take has our human species been more beneficial to this planet or more detrimental? I don't think the planet cares. Um, you know, I, I, when, when we're gone, uh, or if we were gone, uh, the planet would recover. The ecological niches that we've devastated would get filled in, probably not by the same species that, you know, we have destroyed. But, I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've wiped out large chunks of flora and fauna. I mean, all, all the way back, I mean, the, the, mega, the megafauna, um, you know, they, they just, uh, there was a piece in Nature last week about, you know, they're excavating the La Brea tar pits again, and they're finding, mm-hmm. they're finding all these animals, uh, these giant animals, I mean, you know, like elephants and, and giant tigers and stuff, that were apparently uh, run into the pits by people, you know, the, 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 you know we, human beings, you know, in, in, in North America. So, you know, we've done a lot of damage to the planet, but uh, frankly, I think we're doing damage to ourselves, and that, that's the... You know, that, that's, I think, a larger concern is... Well, it's, you know. it's, it's, it seems as a species, we're very uh, exploitive. You know, we like to exploit yeah. everything. Yeah, we and, remind... And, and, I, I think of the termite uh, mounds that I used to see in Australia when we were visiting uh, Jeff Guest's place out in Petford, and they had uh, these wooden fence posts around the, the, the 
the, the corral where the horses were, and you'd see these termite mounds that would grow right up the side of the fence post, and over the course of a couple of years, they would just dissolve all the wood, you know, and then they'd have to replace it. That's kind of us, yeah. you know, we're, we're dissolving yeah. our environment around us, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it is removing our own home, frankly. Yeah, and but so. but the animals the animals motivation wasn't greed and money and power like like humans are, right? Well, I think it was in a way. I you know it was grab all the resources you can for your own survival and to hell with everybody else. Okay, C certainly the termites like, were thinking like the, that way. <laughs> like the story the guy told about the bird feeder just a little while ago. Yeah, yeah. I th I, I think there is you know there is wired into probably most animals a. Uh, um, you know, uh, a, a an instinct to you know acquire as much as possible. On the other hand, there are there are natural balances to that, and and in human societies, we've come up with ways to balance that. From you know preaching that you know greed is an original sin, to uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, and there's a uh, actually a chapter about it in my book, The Hidden History of American Democracy about how uh, the Iroquois and uh, the Hurons and a number of Native American tribes had um, essentially laws that said that anybody who tried to acquire a lot, anybody who was you know, withholding from the rest of the tribe, um, you know, would be banished, which was essentially a death sentence, you know, taken out to the edge of the tribe and kicked out into the woods all alone. Um, so they're pushing pushing equality way back then. Yeah. That's correct, and that's and that's what enabled them to survive twenty thousand years on this continent, you know, in a yeah. way that was uh, a fairly sophisticated uh, culture and society. So, yeah, yeah. I, I totally Very get cool. it. Cliff, thank you for Thanks. the call. Russ in Hickory Hill, Illinois. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? Ah, uh, yeah. Thanks, Tom, for taking my call. I'm with the guy who wrote that. Why are the Democrats? clutching their rosaries over losing Joe Manson. Yeah. You left one other thing out, Tom. Uh, voting rights. Remember we were supposed to have a voting rights and Joe Manson got a filibuster. That's correct. One guy said it. Remember? Yeah, one guy he, said it best. Go ahead. He, he watered down every bill to protect the billionaires and stuck it to the middle class. And who's his two running mates? Romney and Hogan? If I'm not mistaken... Hogan, they're finding out, would enact Trump's policies if he had the Republicans in Maryland. Yeah. This guy is also 78 years old, Tom. Yeah. You know, well, I think he's, he's 74. West Virginia into the ground. Yeah. No, it's, uh, Joe Manchin is a corrupt, uh, you know, coal oligarch. He's, he, and, and by corrupt, I'm talking about he invested in coal that was basically unburnable. And there's one coal plant in West Virginia, because it produces so much pollution. There was one coal plant that was burning that particular type of coal. And Manchin used his political power to keep that coal plant open, even though it was just devastating the communities around it with poisonous, you know, uh, toxic fumes and things, just so that he could make another couple hundred million dollars. Russ, thanks for the call. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Now, I'm very much good riddance and goodbye Joe Manchin. I don't think he would have won re-election in West Virginia anyway. I think that's one of the reasons why he pulled out of the race. And welcome back, Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you for letting us voice our views. 
I was watching the news last night when a reporter asked Biden about the ceasefire, and his response was he wanted it longer. That's but correct. this is what he got. And Biden holds the purse strings. He gets to tell Netanyahu how long he wants the ceasefire and how he wants our hostages alive. If we're funding this war $14.3 billion, he can easily... Um, he can easily cut that in half or do away with it. Now, um, my my uh, sister... Hey, before you move uh, along, if, yeah. I, if I could just speak to, to your starting point there. Um, when Joe Biden was asked, you know, what's going on with the ceasefire over there? Will there be a ceasefire? He said, I wanted a longer one. And then they said, yeah. will there be a ceasefire? And he said, I don't think so. You know, would there be a longer ceasefire? I've seen on all across social media people taking that little tiny clip where Joe Biden said, "Will you know?" Where they said, "Will there be a ceasefire?" And he said, "No, uh, I don't think so," or words to that effect, and put it out as if that was him saying that he doesn't want a ceasefire, and he's being no. ripped apart on social media he for does. that because they took it he completely out of context. A, he does want a ceasefire, yes. but. Um, he has to. He has to be uh, uh, more bold and more strong. My sister takes the car keys away from her teenage. You know, you, he holds the key. And um, I was watching Doctor Foodie Jahdaha, who lives in Texas. He's a doctor as well as a poet, and and he said, "This is." haunting. He said, living life in Gaza is worse than death. And the doctors and surgeons in Gaza deserve better. My friend told me about a young child who had his foot amputated. It was without any anesthesia. Yeah. Anesthesia. And um, I watch Democracy Now! Everyone should be watching that with Amy Goodman. Um, they showed a father, only a toe left of his daughter, and he's kissing it and carrying it around. Um, we're the USA, and Biden needs to get some medical supplies to those doctors. They are incredible. Th th how they're operating is unreal. Yeah. And, yeah. So, um, now, Israel has gone way beyond the pale here. In, in, yeah. In, he, yeah. He is strong enough he can do that. And um, I'm certain, like in Chicago, there was a three-hour protest around his fundraiser. I am certain things would get better if he starts to show he is a kind-hearted man, and he's got to prove it and show it. Yeah. Well, he and, he and um, Blinken are starting to seriously push back now. Um, and, and uh, you know, in the world is, is frankly, as, as I predicted and as Joe Biden predicted, um, the world is turning against Israel. And it's very yeah. unfortunate because, you know, uh, and when Biden went over there, I mean, he, he hopped on a plane and he went over to Israel and he said, please don't respond with rage. Please don't go on a slaughter spree. Let's figure out a way to do this with, you know, the international community. We'll, we'll work together. And uh, Netanyahu and his buddies said, no, we're going to go kill a bunch of people. Yes, you know? 89 U.N. workers killed. Yeah, yeah, it's obscene. Jessica, thank you. Thank you for the call. It's 48 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's Anything Goes Friday on the Tom Hartman Program, your media support group for We the People.
Hey, thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. Uh, attention Angeles, dog parents in South Carolina from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore. Universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back. And it goes Friday here. Kurt in Akron, Ohio. Hey, Kurt, what's up? Hey, thank you for taking my call, Tom. I do appreciate it. And good afternoon in the future here in Ohio, because I'm three hours ahead of you, so I'm three hours in the future. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, and it sucks. Let me tell you, the future sucks from where I stand. But anyway, um, Joe, excuse me, Joe Manchin and Jill Stein, are you seeing, you're a student of history too, are you seeing what I'm seeing as kind of a repeat of 1948 here? And let me say, you have an incumbent Democratic president who is kind of moderate to left-leaning, like Harry Truman was, not very popular among the populace at this point. And he had to go up against a conservative on his right in the name of Strom Thurmond, who let's call that Joe Manchin, and a liberal on the left in the name of uh, Henry Wallace, who was the uh, mm guy that Truman replaced on the ticket in 1948 for vice president, and we'll call him Jill Stein. Then you've got a failed former Republican nominee from 1944, who's probably going to be the nominee here now. We'll call that Tom Dewey or Donald Trump. Um, well, that's so, an interesting analogy. So I'm just, and oh, and by the way, Dewey also suppressed votes in 1944 as well for the servicemen and women in 1944 in the state of New York uh -huh. so that they couldn't vote in the 1944 election for Roosevelt. Huh. Um, so I'm just wondering, and not to mention, you know, it's just a lot of the media's in the tank right now for Donald Trump, as you can see, yeah. like they were with Tom Dewey back in 1948. And, you know, Harry Truman went and he spoke to the people. He spoke plainly to the people, kind of like Biden's doing with these UAW rallies mm -hmm. now, like he did in um, Belvedere, was it Belvedere, Illinois, or Belvedere, Minnesota yesterday, which the media, oh, by the way, only commented on the fact that he made a joke about not falling down right. when it was very important policy speech. Yep. So what Biden or what President Biden needs to do is he needs to utilize what he loves, which is the Amtrak and start going around the country. Do a whistle-stop tour like Harry Truman did? In small-town America and explain it plainly. In fact, I have a collection of Harry Truman's 1948 whistle-stops, and they're only about really? two to ten minutes long at most, but wow. it's basically talking to the people, doing the fine points. And one thing he would say was, how many times do you have to be hit on the head 
before you figure out who's hitting you. And that was in regards to the 80th Republican Congress. Oh, one more thing, too, that we need to look at. 1948, we were two years past, um, the or three years past the Second World War. Mm-hmm. We were still in inflation. We still had high inflation in 1948. We had high inflation until 1950. And if you remember, we were still using ration stamps until 1950. Huh. I, don't, I didn't know that. I, it's not... Uh... So I mean, what I'm getting at is we need to educate people about their history. And it's like, you know, we've been through this before. We'll get through it again. Um, it's not that bad if you know your history and you can see the parallels. And, you know, at that time in 1948, and this is another thing Joe Biden has to be a little more cocky about, is only two people knew they were gonna, that Harry Truman was going to win that election. Harry Truman is one where he told his supporters, well, I'm going to say to you right now that for the next four years, there'll be a Democrat in the White House and you're looking at him. Hmm. And then the other, Les Biffle, the secretary of the Senate, who posed as a chicken peddler and went around the country talking to people about, you know, how do you feel about the inflation? How do you feel about the economy? How do you feel about Harry Truman? And he would go back to Washington and he'd say, Mr. President, you've got nothing to worry about. The common folks are for you. There you go. Well, let's hope that's the case, Kurt, and thank you for the history lesson. Um, I, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, good talking to you. Thank you. I've got a, a Truman clip here that I may play later on in the program. Mark in Oakland, California. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, on, on the message to Tom, I have 30-day ghost writers and speakers, and you can all termination timelines are three. And on Saturday, October 7th, I followed the well-placed signs for town hall, entered, sat in row two to Dayton, signed my one-page letter that says this, Dear Congressman, Free Speech and Tom know me as a union representative without a secure phone, but not the simple paradox why I call. For 18 months, I faced federal cardiac killers who disliked his medium's rebirth and my cardiac. But the paradox, Tom's my three-year FBI friends have my 30-day lodging waiting for me. Yeah, Mark, I'm sorry. I'm number one. Mark, uh, stop harassing us. And and uh, anyhow, uh, Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind? Oh, what's on my mind, Tom? I want to wish you, Louise. Happy anniversary, I guess, tomorrow. You had mentioned before in the past, so I had to do that. So mm-hmm. hopefully you accept it and hope you don't get embarrassed by it. So I had mm-hmm. to do that, first of all. So, Thank you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the topic last week, you mentioned geeky science real quick, the marijuana study, uh, seizures, heart attacks. So if that's the case, then we have a heart attack because it's the greatest medicine, in my opinion, that's helped me. And uh, and they should do research. I don't know how you feel about the report, but uh, it didn't concern me. You're talking about the report that that, that uh, smoking marijuana can cause heart attack. Well, the easy answer is just use use pot uh, use edibles. They don't cause heart attacks. Uh, edibles. I need at least a dozen milligrams. No, you wouldn't, Bobby. <laughs> no, no, Vivian will tell you the most I've had was four thousand. Is an experiment. No, come on. And I guess my brain. Twenty milligrams of pot knocks me on my butt. Really? And yeah. these are edibles, Tom. That's what edibles. I'm talking I about. Eat Four thousand. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Well, Bobby, you're a stronger man than me. I'm sorry, I'm out of time here, Bobby. But great to hear from you. Uh, <laughs> amazing. We'll be back with uh, the Secretary of State of the Great State of Minnesota on the other side of this break, uh, Steve Simon. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
listening to Tom Hartman. As a writer, I get stuck every so often straining for the right words to tell my story. Over the years, though, I've learned when to quit tying myself into mental knots over sentence construction, instead stepping back and rethinking where my story is going. This process is essentially what millions of American working families are going through this year, as record numbers of them are shocking bosses, politicians, and economists by stepping back and declaring, we quit. Most of the quits are tied to very real abuses that have become ingrained in our workplaces over the past couple of decades. Poverty paychecks, no health care, unpredictable schedules, no child care, understaffing, forced overtime, unsafe jobs, sexist and racist managers, tolerance of aggressively rude customers, and so awful much more. Specific grievances abound, but at the core of each is a deep, inherently destructive, executive suite malignancy, disrespect. The corporate system has cheapened employees from valuable human assets worthy of being nurtured and advanced to a bookkeeping expense that must be steadily eliminated. It's not just about paychecks. It's about feeling valued, feeling that the hierarchy gives a damn about the people doing the work. Yet, corporate America is going out of its way to show that it doesn't care. And, of course, workers notice. So unionization is booming. Millions who were laid off by the pandemic are refusing to rush back to the same old grind. And now millions who have jobs are quitting. This is much more than an unusual unemployment stat. It's a sea change in people's attitude about work itself and life. They are rethinking where their story is going and how they can take it in a better direction. Yes, nearly everyone will eventually return to work, but workers themselves have begun redefining the job and rebalancing it with life. You're listening to X-Ray FM at KXRY Portland on 107.1 and 91.1 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Roger defended himself when Sam hit first. Roger, who is black, was suspended while his white classmate got detention. Racial disparity in school discipline begins in pre-K, where black students are twice as likely to be suspended than their white peers. At Youth Rights and Justice, we begin educational advocacy early and train community members to know their rights. YRJ is a nonprofit legal services agency. We advance the rights of children, parents, and families through advocacy in the courts, schools, legislature, and community. Youth Rights and Justice is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. More information at giveguide.org. This is Ross Beach, host of Alive with Pleasure, with this week's edition of the X-Ray FM Concert Calendar, a highly abridged list highlighting some of the many live music shows in the Portland area for the weekend starting on this Friday, November the 10th. Friday night brings us Joan Osborne at the Aladdin Theater, Ms. Lauren Hill at the Moda Center, Beach Fossils at the Roseland, Genesis Owusu at the Star Theater, and Stephanie Schneiderman at the Laurel Thirst. Then on Saturday, Dizzy comes to Polaris Hall, a giant dog 
will be at Dante's, Aiden Bissette will be at Holocene, Scott Yoder plays The Fixin' Two, actors will be at The Coffin Club, and Margaret Glaspie and Cat Clyde come to Mississippi Studios. Then on Sunday night, local band The Prairie Benders has a CD release show at The Kenton Club, Tally's plays The Show Bar, ZZ Ward will be at Revolution Hall, and Fever Ray comes to the Roseland Theater. On Monday, Liz Fair will be at Revolution Hall, and St. Paul and the Broken Bones come to the Crystal Ballroom. Then on Tuesday, the Linda Lindas will be at Revolution Hall, Noah Gunderson comes to the Aladdin Theater, and Joy Oladokun comes to the Crystal Ballroom. On Wednesday, we'll have Creature Party at Holocene, No Name will be at the Roseland Theater, and the new pornographers come to Revolution Hall. Then Thursday night, local band Lawrence Elk has a release show at the Fixin' 2, Simmel will be at Revolution Hall, Kuinka comes to the Get Down, and Win plays at the Wonder Ballroom. If you're just learning the name of some of these artists like I did this week, I've got good news. I'll be spinning many of them on my radio show, Alive with Pleasure, this Friday afternoon from 2 to 4 and every Friday afternoon as part of these fantastic Friday afternoon evening lineup here on X-Ray FM. If you know about a show that you'd like included in this concert list, email those details to AliveWithPleasureRadio at gmail.com. This has been Ross Beach with this weekend's X-Ray FM concert calendar for Portland, Oregon. Radio is yours.
Welcome to the second hour of our program. On the line with us is the Minnesota Secretary of State and Vice Chair of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, Steve Simon. SOS.state.mn.us uh, is the uh, website. MN Secretary of State on Twitter or MN Steve Simon. And uh, Secretary Simon, welcome to the program. It's so nice to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Um, so tell me what happened here in Minnesota when a, a group came to your, your, your state or in your state and said, you know, we don't think Donald Trump should be allowed to run for president because he uh, fomented an insurrection per the 14th Amendment. Yeah, well, we were one of many states that were the target of that effort. And it's not hard to imagine why they think that. Um, but really our position and my position was this, look, when it comes to claims of ineligibility of all kinds, whether it's residency or age or qualifications or anything, our longstanding position in, as an office, which I think is the good and right one, is look, that's up to a court. We're not a fact-finding agency. We don't have investigators out there talking about facts, including on things like residency questions. We don't have you know, people hiding in the bushes with binoculars to see if representative or senator so-and-so are really living in their district. We get those kind of claims coming up from time to time. So this is like that, meaning it's, it's really not our call. It isn't good for it to be our call. We don't have guns, badges, subpoena power, investigators, whatever. If someone's going to find facts and make conclusions that a particular person, in this case Donald Trump, uh, engaged in particular conduct and that that conduct rose to the level of an insurrection under the Constitution, that's not my or our call. I can you know have all the opinions I want, but if you're going to make a move like that, it needs to be in a court proceeding. And in Minnesota in particular, we have a very specific and fairly commonly used procedure, the one that's being used right now, to determine exactly those questions. So it's really not up to secretaries of state generally mm -hmm. it's up to the courts so when this went before the court i understand that uh, and and please uh, fill in the blanks here or correct me if my understanding is wrong that your uh, i believe this was argued before the supreme court and that basically what they said was because this is being challenged on a primary ballot and if he wins a primary he doesn't actually take office Therefore, this doesn't apply right now. So come back and talk to us if he wins the primary when he wants to be on the general election ballot. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you're getting that right. That was, in legal terms, not ripe. It wasn't ripe yet, and then it would be potentially ripe. In essence, if he were the nominee, if, he were, if we were talking about a general election, uh, the idea being, they said, that this is an intra-party contest, uh, yes, that government administers it when they run primaries, but it's really an intra-party contest on both the Republican and the Democratic side. It's a favor, in essence, that government is doing for parties. They'll run the election, uh, but it's a party function. And uh, unless and until he is the nominee of his party, they sort of telegraphed, this is not ripe. It's not mm -hmm. yet ready to be decided. So presumably... I don't know this for a fact. There will be a suit refiled and re-argued and re-litigated some months from now if former President Trump either actually is or soon will be his party's nominee. When I, when I read that, uh, my first thought was these justices uh, or judges, I'm not sure what you call them on the Minnesota Supreme Court, probably justices, right? Um, right. Th that they probably just didn't want to get their hands dirty with this thing. I mean, this would be the first state in the union. Um, the pressure would be incredible. The the uh, they could expect 
uh, you know, the kind of death threats and stuff that always happens to people who take on Donald Trump. Um, uh, to what extent do you think that this was, you know, a, a solid, legally, a solid decision versus punting? I think it's absolutely defensible legally. I mean, I think a reasonable court could go either way on it, but I don't think they went out of their way not to hear this case. Uh, it's a defensible argument. It's been made and will be made, I predict, elsewhere. The idea that, look, this is you, exactly as you say, it's pretty high stakes. It's a pretty bold thing to do. You better make sure that we're in the precise place where even making that decision is reasonable. So I, I can't say it's an unreasonable decision. Uh, they left open the possibility uh, that um, there will be another lawsuit at the proper time if former President Trump is the nominee. Right. You are the uh, vice chair of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. And uh, the uh, Republican efforts to suppress the vote have really uh, kicked into hyperdrive. I, my understanding is there have been over 300 pieces of legislation in the last five or six years um, making it harder for people to vote in various states that have that have passed and, and many more than that that have been proposed. Um, please correct my numbers if I don't have them right. Um, what's what is the state of democracy in America and what can we best do to push back against this? I mean, in, in, in to the best of my knowledge, I lived in Europe for a year. I lived in Germany for a year. And uh, my experience there, and, and there was an election when I lived there, you know, you're automatically registered to vote now, or at least that's my understanding of it. I, I could be wrong. I mean, and things might have changed since the 1980s. But, um, you know, when when you're born, you're essentially put on the voter rolls. And when you're 18, boom, you're eligible. Um, everybody gets a ballot. I mean, you know, this the, uh, pretty much every other developed country in the world has essentially automatic voting and, and you know and and full voting privileges why is it that in the united states we're so aggressive about preventing people from voting is this purely left over from from jim crow era stuff is this uh you know is there well what's the state of democracy in america right now that's a pretty big question well, I guess. L let me start by saying this i am a long-term optimist about democracy in America. I really am for a lot of reasons we can get into, but there's no question we have a ton of challenges. You named one, which is these uh, attempts, many attempts, too many attempts to make voting unnecessarily harder, unnecessarily harder, put up more walls, more barriers, and it doesn't make sense, and it runs against the current, I believe, of modern American history. There's another problem, though. In addition to the legislation, and I think it's it's presently the number one problem to our democracy or for our democracy, is this sort of poisonous cloud of disinformation about our election system. Look, we should have the debate all day long about what the system ought to be. You raised some great examples, automatic voter registration, which we just passed in Minnesota, other things that could make the system better. And there are people all over the country that could disagree on what stuff to add, what stuff to subtract from our laws, either nationally or in any state. That's fine. But if we can't come to some basic common understanding of what the system is, whether you like that system or not, how it really functions and operates, if we're going to poison people's understanding with disinformation that is very much conceived and intentionally uh, uh, sort of weaponized to corrode, uh, you know, well-earned 
uh, uh, confidence in our system. If we're going to do that for political purposes or economic purposes, we got deep problems. And that is a big deal. We saw it in 2020 and its aftermath. We're already seeing it now in 2024, things that are just plain wrong that are being weaponized and giving people a false impression about the way the system actually works, the way it actually is. It is a problem, and we've got to stand up to it. So what do we do about it? A few thoughts. One is, I think, you and I and others who have any kind of megaphone, we have to lead with the truth, always. We have to confront this stuff, call it what it is, and say what the truth is. Another thing that I think is important, some people, you know, don't like to hear this, but I think there has to be a nuance here in making a separation between the people who intentionally peddle and weaponize this stuff and the folks, everyday people, who buy into some of it. They don't know necessarily that it's wrong or false, uh, but someone they know and like and trust is saying it, so they believe that it's true. The third thing is I think transparency is our best friend. Speaking only for Minnesota here, but I know this is the case in other states, look, we got plenty of checks and balances and assurances and guarantees of trustworthiness built into the process before, during, and after the election. Let's talk about it. Let's show people. You think you believe some national political figure when he says that election machines are changing votes from candidate A to candidate B? You're in that category. You suspect that's true? Great. Come on in. We've got, we've got stuff in Minnesota law that guarantees the public full access to the machines, to, you know, ways that they can be uh, tricked or, or fooled, um, and, and, and the reasons why we're able to overcome those things. That's just one granular example, but those are some of the strategies we can use to make sure people are seeking out trusted sources for this stuff and to stand up to the lies and the disinformation when we see them. We have uh, th- people, uh, election workers in three states yesterday received uh, letters in the mail. Uh, apparently one of them was laced with fentanyl, the other two with baking soda or something. Um, uh, are you experiencing this kind of intimidation of election officials in Minnesota? And is this a, a large national problem or is this something that, you know, kind of a one-off or, you know, a, a random crackpot? Well, we haven't, thank God, uh, experienced the letters with powder yet. I I just checked this morning and we have not. I guess there are four states that have. We have not Mm -hmm. yet, as far as I know. But if what you're really asking is uh, the the more global question of have there been sort of threats, harassment, and intimidation directed at people who run elections, the answer is yes. On a smaller scope and scale, it's limited. We want to keep it that way. But um, it's disturbing over the last few years. I mean, things like, they're not things like sending powder, but, but things like, I'll give you an example, one person who was the head of elections in a county in Minnesota was accosted at the public counter, physically accosted in the workplace by someone who had an elections-related grievance. Another head of elections in a different county in Minnesota told me personally that um, she had a member of her team who was followed to her car in a parking lot after hours uh, by someone who was up in arms or agitated and had an elections-related grievance. You know, that goes beyond just First Amendment protected free speech. You can have whatever opinion you want, but that's conduct. Yeah. That's hostile conduct beyond just speech, and, and we're seeing too much of that. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Um, Steve Simon, the Secretary of State for the great state of Minnesota. Um, Secretary Simon, thank you so much for dropping by and filling us in on all this. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Great, great talking with you. I, I, I look forward to future conversations. Um, you like can, what? Thank you. And you can follow Steve Simon over on uh, on Twitter at uh, MN Steve Simon or MN Sec, uh, Secretary of State. Um, uh, great stuff. Great stuff. 17 minutes past the hour. 18 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back with more of the uh, news of the day and ear calls right after this. And welcome back, Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. First, real quick, uh, Joe Manchin, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and the Israel, the Israel-Palestine, I go back to what my mom always told me, two wrongs don't make a right. Yep. What I was calling is, is uh, I tried to get through on Monday, but the rain stopped that from happening. You were doing those letters from the uh, re-education camps, or whatever you wanted to call them. Mm-hmm. And you were... Well, I, my, my attitude is I'm 66. I got bone-on-bone bone knees. I got AFib. I ain't writing a letter. I got guns. I'd rather go down fighting. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I'm not going to get herded into the American equivalent of the Warsaw Ghetto. Yeah. I would rather die with dignity. I don't think it's going to come to that, Mark. I really don't. I hope not. But, I mean, if, if you're writing letters from the re-education camp, we're already there. Yeah, well, that was... Uh, yeah, I, I, I get your point, and 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 Trump has said that on the first day that he's elected, he's going to declare uh, martial law. Essentially, he's going to invoke the Insurrection Act, and he's going to been, begin putting Democrats in prison. Um, so, you know, I, you know, when fascists tell you what they're up to, you need to believe them. Uh, you absolutely need That's to believe the them. That's a sad thing. Yeah, I'm you know, you got these hardcore Trumpers. They they don't care. You know, I mean, you got Trumpers that don't believe that there were um, documents in Mar-a-Lago after Trump admitted to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's bragging about it now. <laughs> I, I get it. Mark, thank you. Thank you for the call. Stephen in Northern California. Hey, Stephen, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Hey, uh, can you hear me there, Tom? Yeah, just fine. Okay, great. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment and say that uh, what's happening with Israel and Hamas uh, in my view, I see it, um, their response is almost identical to what, how the United States responded to Iraq and Afghanistan for the incident of 9-11. Yeah, my, my point, I mean, this is when, when Biden went over to, to Israel after, the, after Hamas did this horrific attack and sat down with Netanyahu, his, you know, what he had to say was, don't go nuts here. Do not go on a revenge tour. Don't don't start slaughtering people just because you can. Um, you know, let's let's do this carefully and thoughtfully, and let's you know let's uh, remove Hamas and and uh, Netanyahu ignored it. Isn't him. that a little? Isn't that a little hypocritical though? I mean, because the United States, you know, we don't get a lot of this in the media, but. You know, our country basically destroyed two other countries. Oh, I know. And that was the point that Biden made, was we made a horrible mistake. George W. Mm -hmm. Bush made a terrible mistake, and it led to, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths, 7,000 American deaths, five, six, seven trillion dollars in American treasure, um, all, you know, all absolutely unnecessary. 
And, uh, and, and in fact, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan didn't even have anything to do with Al Qaeda. So uh, it's, right. <laughs> I mean, it's so yeah. If anybody, yes, it's hypocritical on the one hand, but on the other hand, if anybody has the uh, uh, the experience, the legitimate has a legitimate you know case to build that this is a stupid thing to do. It's us because we did it and we learned. Hopefully. Well, I'm not sure we learned from it, but yeah. I, and I'm not sure how this is all going to work out. But my instinct tells me that uh, pretty much what we <laughs> how, how it ended with us is pretty much how it, what Israel is going to do. And I fear I that's the case, Stephen. And, 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 yeah, I fear that's the case, and I, this is this is just a, a really grim situation. Stephen, thank you for the call. It's 22 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back with more of your calls on Anything Goes Friday. Change starts with you. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million un uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free, and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at, at uh, HartmanReport.com. Uh, I think you're, you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Johnson uh, was on Fox News a couple days ago, and he was uh, asked about uh, uh, his Right to Contraception Act, HR, or his vote on, he was asked about two bills. The first was a, a, a bill that uh, would create a legal basis for women to get birth control pills if they've been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. You would think that that's already the law, but apparently it's not. And so this law, H.R. 8373, and this was uh, back when Nancy Pelosi was uh, in the, you know, running the House, this law would have said uh, women have an absolute right to birth control birth control pills, IUDs, whatever, as long as they're approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Mark, Mike Johnson voted against this. Against this. Then he himself co-sponsored a piece of legislation, H.R. 431, this was more recently, called the Life at Conception Act that would create a nationwide ban on birth control devices like IUDs and pills and hormonal birth control pills because the anti-abortion freaks claim these are actually abortifacients. They're not, but they, they make that claim and they all believe it. This would also, by the way, blow up the in vitro fertilization industry. 
his, uh, so anyhow, he was, he was asked about this on Fox News. You know, you sponsored this legislation that would have outlawed birth control. And what was his response? I don't remember. Seriously? I don't remember? I mean, it's just totally bizarre that, uh, that this is the position he's taking. Meanwhile, Ohio Republicans are, are just coming right out and saying, yeah, the people said that we, we have a right to abortion, but we're not, we're not fans of that. We're not, going, we're not necessarily going to follow the law, the Constitution. David Pepper over at uh, davidpepper.substack.com uh, is today, it's titled Outrageous but 100% Predictable. Uh, the Ohio Re House of Representatives, on the letterhead of the House of Representatives, they submitted a press release with the names of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, about 30 Republicans who signed this letter that says, and I quote, we will do everything in our power to prevent our laws from being removed now they're talking about the law against abortion, from being removed based on perception of intent. In other words, they're arguing that when all those people voted to amend the Constitution of Ohio to say that women have a right to an abortion, that that was not really a legal process, that was a, a statement of intent perception of intent. They go on to say, we were elected to protect the most vulnerable in the state, and we will continue that work. Everything in our power, they're going to use everything in their power? Really? And they say, we were elected. Actually, most of them were from districts that were so gerrymandered that they, they were not actual contests. This is where the Republican Party is at. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. All across the right-wing media sphere right now, you'll find all these articles about how this proves how terrible democracy is. Seriously. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading an excerpt from Robert Wolf's book, Original Wisdom, Stories of an Ancient Way of Knowing. I wrote the foreword for it. Uh, Robert Wolf just died just a few months ago, just this last year, uh, in Hawaii. Louise and I visited him there a number of times. He was in his 90s. And back in the 1950s, he was an anthropologist and sociologist who had been hired by the Malaysian government to figure out why this one particular aboriginal tribe, the Sanoi, who lived deep inside the jungle, hunting-gathering tribe, why they were, quote, lazy, why they were unwilling to work in the rubber plantations. And he got to know them, and he discovered that their view of the world was completely different than ours. And that's essentially what this book is about, and it's absolutely a mind-boggling book. I'll share a little. This is from the middle of the book. This is page 86. It's uh, finally he's reached the point where they'll let him sleep in the village with them. He says, in time, I grew to know them better. But it was when I began to overnight in their villages that I learned that they literally lived in another reality. When it became dark, people huddled together for warmth and companionship. In the tropics, there's no long period of dusk. It grows dark quickly. The air would become cool, and people would move closer together, reaching out, touching a neighbor, perhaps holding hands. Women might run their fingers through the hair of the person sitting next to them. During the nights I stayed over, they would often gather around me and have me ask them questions. Then they would ask me questions, very quietly and softly. 
Our being together was not like other social situations I'd ever experienced. We talked, but softly. They did not know how to compete for attention. A few words now and then were all that were spoken, a question or a comment, a simple answer. Long silences. Sometimes someone would have some tobacco and light a cigarette, a tobacco rolled into a leaf, which was passed around the group. People might ask each other whether they had noticed that particularly bright patch of sunlight on the side of the river behind a certain tree, or if they had noticed that large yellow bird that sang in the morning. Evening was a time of reflection, of gentle communication, of being together. I never knew their blood relationships, but evening times felt like family. As it grew later, one of the people would get up to go, going to one of the houses, more often little more than lean-tos or rickety huts on stilts, and fall asleep. Eventually, each of us had found an empty spot on the floor of one of the shelters, and wrapped in our sarongs, we huddled close to whoever else slept in that house that night. The houses did not belong to anyone. It seemed that each of the four or five little shelters was for all the people living in, this, in that settlement at that moment. We would fall asleep whenever we chose, and, I'm sure, with whomever we wanted to spend the night. Yes, people had sex, but even that was gentle, quiet, and discreet. Occasionally, someone might turn over and bump into a couple being a little too acrobatic or noisy, and there would be a grunt. Or people might move away from a couple that made too much to do about their lovemaking. Passionate lovemaking between young people often took place during the day, outside in a more hidden spot in the jungle, I was told. In the morning, we might not all wake up at the same time, but those who woke up early would lay quietly, waiting for more people to awaken. And somehow, as if by magic, we would find ourselves sitting in a circle, rubbing our eyes, stretching the kinks out. One person would say, I saw a bird, a beautiful bird. Someone else would say, yes, I too saw a bird. What kind of bird was it, another would ask. And so they would create a story with images from our dreams. They did not think that they were sharing dreams as we think of dreams. The Sinoi believe that the world we live in is a shadow world and that the real world is behind it. At night, they believe, we visit the real world. In the morning, we share what we saw and learned there. The story that was created around the memories that four or five people brought back from the real world set the tone for that day. Sometimes one of the group would take the lead in soliciting input from each person in the room. How about you? What do you remember? Other times, the story flowed without help. A few times, no story emerged at all. It was very obvious that when a more or less coherent story was created around the images we shared, we who had slept in that shelter would live that story that day. Usually, the stories were simple. A bird had shown the way to a tree that was bearing fruit. Later that day, some of us would find that tree, and of course, it did have ripe fruit. Or the story was about a bad storm, so people would stay close to the shelters all day, and yes, there was a big storm in the late afternoon. Occasionally, the stories were about things that affected all of them, all the people in the settlement, or perhaps even all the Sinoi. In that case, they would make it a point to share with the people who had slept in other shelters as soon as possible. It might take all morning to disseminate that story to everyone. I did not witness any attempts to call a meeting, but it was obvious that when a serious story came out of a morning's dream-telling, all the people in the settlement would eventually hear that story. I learned about all of this during, very early during the time that I spent with the Sonoy. It was in what I thought of as the first village, the first settlement I visited, that an important story emerged from what I brought back from the real world during one of my nights there. It made a big impression on me because part of the story came from my dream. It was a particularly vivid dream about one of my family's dogs, an all-black mongrel that seemed to have come with the house we rented in the suburbs of Kuala Lumpur. We had tried to get rid of that dog. In fact, one of the first days after we moved off, 
uh, in. We had run over to the, the over the poor dog in the driveway, but he would not leave. I tried chasing him away. He kept coming back. So we adopted him and called him Jaga, which is Malay for guard or protector. I do not remember that Jaga was a particularly good watchdog, but he was around. And he goes on to tell his dream. And then it, it's a, just an absolutely fascinating story. Original Wisdom, Stories of an Ancient Way of Knowing by Robert Wolfe. Hey, if you like the rants that I open the show with every day, they're typically published over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. So MAGA Mike and the Republicans want a religious test for people running for public office. They want to know that you are sufficiently Christian to be worthy of being elected. Right. MAGA Mike is one of these uh, seven mountain evangelicals. There are seven domains where these dominionists believe that we need to have religion completely take them over. Education, religion, family, business, government, military, arts and entertainment, and the media. Seriously. This is not what Jesus was preaching when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto, unto God what is God's. This is the opposite, in fact, of what Jesus was teaching. It's the opposite of Matthew 25, where Jesus said the only way to get to heaven is by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, helping the poor. It's, this is counter-Christian, anti-Christian, in fact. In fact, I think you could say it is the Antichrist's work. There's a piece about it over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. Welcome back, 35 minutes past the hour, and uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah, more than 60. Oh, uh, GOP, what, one other quick story I wanted to share with you. Christian nationalism expert warns the Republican Party will increasingly reject democracy as they lose elections. Um, this over at, uh, by Dean Obidala. And just, as I said just a minute ago, the, the uh, right-wing media are just losing their minds over you know, having uh, lost the Ohio vote. And uh, so North Dakota State Representative Brandon Pritchard says, uh, ignore the results. He says, direct democracy should not exist. Case in point, Ohio legalizing the slaughter of babies. It would be an act of courage to ignore the results of the elections and not allow for the murder of Ohio babies. So what? He, wa he wants the uh, Ohio Republican Party to direct the Ohio Police Department to start prosecuting doctors and women? Pritchard was pressed by uh, Liam Siegler, a writer who's been published by the National Review, a conservative writer, who wrote, I don't like today's results either, but we have a constitution for a reason. But Pritchard responded defiantly. He said, our political process, which has been hijacked by progressives over the last hundred years, is the reason to allow the murder of babies. Sorry, friend, not a good take. Hijacked over the last hundred years. Let's see, what's happened in the last hundred years? Oh, that's right. A hundred years ago, women got the vote, didn't they? I forgot about that. And we've, you know, we've had some right-wing billionaires say, uh, that was when it all went to hell. Just hours after uh, this, this came, his response came just hours after Republican and religious zealot Rick Santorum on Newsmax uh, said basically the same thing. He said, I thank goodness that most of the states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because pure democracies are no way to run a country. And, and as Dean Obidala points out, uh, my SiriusXM colleague in his newsletter, Dean's Report, 
uh, on Substack. He says, this is all based on this theory. This, this, uh, Mike Johnson has a flag of the new apostolic movement outside his office. He's got the, the uh, Louisiana flag, the U.S. flag, and the new apostolic movement's flag. It's a, it's a pine tree with the words, uh, something, you know, save us from heaven, or words to that effect. And um, it's, a, it's about these, here's, here's basically their position. We are not a democracy, we are a republic. Now, what does that mean? It means that America was founded as a distinctly Christian nation, and constitutional rights cannot be interpreted in a way that goes against God's law. For example, supporting uh, LGBTQ rights. Nuts. It's friggin' nuts. Meanwhile, more than 60 mayors nationwide have demanded that the Republican Party in the House adopt an assault weapons ban. Uh, we had an assault weapons ban uh, from 1994 to 2004, and it cut in half the number of mass shootings that we had. Since that ban ended in 2004, the number of mass shootings has exploded along with the number of assault weapons. So, you know, let's do something about this. All right, let's pick up your calls here, see what's on your mind on Anything Goes Friday. George in Cripple, Cripple, Cripple Creek, Virginia. Hey, George, what's up? Hey, Tom, I, I always enjoy your talks with Phil Idner, and he emphasized, you know, Ukraine is uh, dependent on continued Western aid, but uh, I know some of our European allies are already getting cold feet. You know, oh, no. Germany's withdrawing its... Uh, anti-missile patriot strength system from Romania and the uh, newly elected Slovakian pro-Putin government just vetoed an EU you know, aid package to Ukraine and seems to, you know, Poland and the Baltic states are one of the most you know, enthusiastic supporters of Ukraine because they know if Putin wins in Ukraine, they're next on the list. That's right. That's right. They can see the big bear next door. Exactly. So yeah, that, I, you know, I'm concerned, we're concerned about what you say, you know, Russian propaganda and uh, bots and all that are going to, you know, so discontent among our European allies. So this trend will continue into the future. Oh, yeah, I think so. And in fact, I would be willing to bet that at that meeting, um, uh, the Republicans abroad meeting uh, that's happening today and tomorrow in France, that one of the one of the issues of conversation will be how do we screw Ukraine? Um, exactly right. It is so sad to see, uh, you know, the party that you used to be an enthusiastic member of, George, or at least a member of, um, right, exactly. that my dad was a member of, to, to see that part. Well, right. you know, I, I went door to door for Barry Goldwater in 1964. I guess I was a member of, too, at one point, to see that party just turn into this mess. I mean, it's just it's just a mess. It's, uh, you know, somebody once said, you know, insanity is... Uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. And uh, I guess the Republicans forgot that. Yeah, I think you're right. George, thanks for the call. And thanks for pointing that out about Ukraine. It's a, good it's a big work deal. and enjoy your program. I'll do it, George. Thank you very kindly. Uh, Rich in Cedro Woolley, Washington. Hey, hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Well, when it comes to West Virginia, I believe we need to go full Bernie down there. Whatever, I think so too. Uh, Bernie, Bernie just you know wiped the map. I mean, you know, he 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 beat uh, Hillary Clinton in the primaries in 2016 in West Virginia hugely. I think a genuine progressive in West Virginia has a real chance. Uh, exactly. Whatever milquetoast moderate that the Mansion Machine is going to put out there doesn't have a chance, and that may be by design because I think Mansion, who's going to lose by 13 points want somebody else to lose worse than he would. Yeah. If we put up a, a progressive that 
even if they don't win, if they cut those numbers down, it also has the added bonus of damaging Manchin's brand Right. while he's out there pretending to want to be president. Yeah, it's the same thing with Presley down in Mississippi. I am convinced that if, uh, if Mr. Presley had taken a progressive position on abortion, that he would be the governor of Mississippi right now, not Tay Reeves. Right, and you were speaking about Truman earlier with another caller, and remember mm-hmm. the uh, Truman axiom that a Democrat who acts like a Republican will surely be defeated by a true Republican. That's right. And here's another, here's another Harry, here's, here's a Harry Trumanism for you, Bob Rich. People know that the Democratic Party is the people's party, and the Republican Party is the party of special interest, and it always has been and always will be. Back to you, Rich. That is it. Yeah, I think uh, your listeners down. I don't think PDA, uh, Progressive Democrats of America, actually has a an office in West Virginia. But progressive in in West Virginia, let's get a let's get a candidate put forward. Let's start calling Tom here and uh, let's get some names there you going. Go. I yeah. want to hear this. We got to get rolling on this action. I, yeah, we we should uh, we should reach out to Troy our. Uh uh, he used to be a producer of this program, and uh, Troy Miller, who lives in West Virginia and writes a, a newsletter for Substack on West Virginia topics. Um, I, I'm guessing he has some insights into this. I'd love to hear from him. Rich, thanks for the call. Ziggy in Oneonta, New York. Hey, Ziggy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I wanted to talk to you about uh, New Democrats versus FDR Democrats and the possibility of a new definition. Uh, This morning on Morning Joe, they were talking about New Democrats versus uh, FDR Democrats. And basically, uh, they were saying that uh, Biden isn't a New Democrat. He's an old FDR Democrat. Correct. Yeah, the New Democratic Coalition was something that came with Bill Clinton embracing neoliberalism. That is right. That is correct. Yes. But I think we need to get away from that term, new Democrat. And also, I know that he was saying old FDR because he was trying to uh, play on uh, uh, Biden's age, which is kind of the thing to do. And I dislike it when Republicans try to uh, define Democrats. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually, new really should be a corporate Democrat. And I'm thinking that maybe we should try to come up with a new new Democrat term that defines us as wanting to end corruption based upon FDR principles. Well, that's progressives. I know. I agree. So why don't we just use the label we we have? Yeah, I think so. I really do. You know, but I was just so irritated at how they were talking about the old FDR. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) That it just aggravated me. So I thought I'd. That's that's Joe just slipping the uh, the word old in there. Although he has, you know, I mean, he's come a long way in the last six years. uh, I agree, and I'd rather have them talking about it than not talking about it. But I I think so many people are misled with the term. Uh, new Democrat, you know, thinking, hey, I'm a new Democrat. You know, mm-hmm. well, you're not in, according to the term, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. to me, it's corporate, basically, is what it means, you know? Yep. And I'm just Again, saying that the maybe the word is progressive, too, but also sometimes people take progressive negatively, and I don't know why, because I think it's very positive. It is very positive. Progress, progress. Hey, Ziggy, thank you for the call. And keep up the great work there at nbribes.whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> dot, dot com, I think. We'll be right back. 45 minutes past the hour.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. Stay tuned. see here rich in indianapolis hey rich thanks for watching us on youtube what's on your mind today um, thank you very much um and thank you so much for your guest a couple of days ago frank schaefer and his book crazy for god um i didn't know that uh, it existed and i was introduced to him for the first time too so folks uh will do very well to uh read themselves in on on his work yeah absolutely the reason i'm calling the reason I'm calling is that I uh, think that we are in a situation where separation of church and state is able to be muddied, even though we've got a constitution that says that we don't have a state religion and uh, that um, there is supposed to be a, an absolute demarcation. Right, no religious and, test. People are, yeah, yeah. And as uh, people are also conflating that the founding fathers were Christians. No, <laughs> no, uh, they were deists, and uh, that's an altogether different deal. And so this rewriting of history, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is having me look around for how has this been approached by others. And I have been made aware of France's laïcité. Um, do you know much about it? I am no. only uh, barely aware of it. No, I'm well, completely the unfamiliar. The Lysite came about in 1905 after lots of, of battles with the church. The spelling of this word is capital L-A-I-C-I-T-E with an accent going up and to the right, like mm -hmm. on cafe. Mm -hmm. So Lysite, and its basis, uh, its uh, etymology, goes to Latin lycus and Greek laikos, which means of the people. Like the Lyceum. Uh, the closest word, yes. And um, the, the closest word we have as it's applied with laicite would be like a lay person, uh -huh. the laity. Okay. Uh -huh. So this came out of the anti-clerical movement uh, at the end of the 19th century, and they were desperately struggling because the Catholic Church just kept on showing up. They cut the king's head off. They say separation of church and state. And then slowly and slowly, Napoleon shows up and he makes Catholicism the state religion mm. and then crowns himself. Uh, don't repeat history, people. Uh, so then they are struggling with that further and they finally come to this idea through the anti-clerical movement that the laicite is canonized, um, codified. <laughs> and um, so looking to how other people have solved problems that we're facing right now can only uh, assist our understanding of our own problem. And uh, we are dealing with this power grab by this conflation of fact and uh, falsehood and we're dealing with people who are very interested in ascending. Um, they, they are all about the getting close to power and taking the favor that the power will give them for doing the work. 
There's a really good song by the Rolling Stones called Dirty Work, and everybody needs to know those fun lyrics because hearing Mick sing about dirty work and get some loser find some jerk to do it all for free yeah. is what these guys are doing. Yeah. We have Stockholm victims, and we have Dunning-Kruger victimizers. Yeah, I'm with you. Rich, yeah, I got it. Rich, thank you. It's 49 minutes past the hour. I'll be back with, uh, actually, Jacob, Jake, uh, Jacob is, it used to be called Jacob Dean. It's going to be right back with us. Stay with us. Help support Progressive Radio. If you're listening to us on a commercial station, call their advertisers and let them know you're listening. If you're listening to us on Pacifica or one of our many nonprofit stations, please support them when they do their fundraising drives. Thanks for supporting Progressive Talk Radio and tag your it. So Vivek Ramaswamy, during the uh, first Republican debate, was laying out his vision for America. In, and by the way, he was the number two guy in the debate, according to the Washington Post, in which he was arguing that we should basically do away with all of our federal agencies. Really, uh, virtually all of them. Just, just shut them down and make them go away. Uh, he's not the first person to argue this. David Koch, running on the uh, Libertarian ticket in 1980 for vice president, was arguing the same thing. He had a long list of federal agencies he wanted to shut down. This is not an uncommon thing among billionaires, and Ramaswamy is a billionaire. Uh, you know, they basically want to take America back to the 1920s before we had what they call the welfare state. And if they do so, they will turn America into a failed state. They want to make America into, into something like Haiti or Libya, and that would be a disaster. There's a whole article about it that you can read all the details. It's titled, Is Vivek Ramaswamy a Different Kind of Republican Cat? At HartmanReport.com. Check it out. And welcome back. On the line with us is uh, Jacob Patterson, or Jacob Dean Patterson. Jacob uh, used to be a producer on this program, uh, worked with us for years and years, followed us to Washington, D.C., wonderful guy. He's a high school teacher now in Portland and a former producer of our program. Uh, PDXteachers.org is the Portland teacher's uh, website. And uh, Jacob, welcome to the It's great to have you on the air instead of running the board behind the air. Uh, tell me about the teachers' strike and how, how everything's going here in Portland with that and what, what this means in the context of the larger labor movement nationwide. Tom, good morning. So great to see you and, and great to be back with you. Um, I'm having a little audio issue on my end, so it's, it's tough to hear you, but I see you. And it, I'm having a back. real hard time hearing you, um, Jacob. I don't yeah, know if you I'm can... a, a Portland teacher and part of the, the picket actions and the strikes. Um, we're not picketing today because of the Veterans Day, but we are planning more the... actions starting back on Monday if we still have no contract, contract agreement reached between uh, the union and the PPS district. Uh, PPS district sent out an update last night to all the teachers and everybody uh, saying that they're actually starting to make progress in the bargaining session. And that's the first time in this whole uh, situation that we've heard that any progress is being made. So that's pretty significant. Um, we're hearing that the district and the union have exchanged new proposals uh, over the last two days. But bargaining on this contract, Tom, has been going on for over a year now. Wow. and. Uh, they're going to continue negotiations today and through Veterans Day weekend. Um, there is one little bit of common ground here, and that is that everyone wants students and teachers back in the classroom. Um, and we're hearing that we could be back to work 
as soon as Monday or by the end of the week. Um, some brand new news that just happened yesterday afternoon. Um, the union, the PAT, uh, Portland Association of Teachers, launched a no-confidence vote on the PPS superintendent, Guadalupe Guerrero, yesterday, and are now calling for him to resign or be terminated. Um, and the union, Tom, is stepping up pressure and stepping up their actions every day, one day longer, one day stronger. Uh, teachers are protesting. These are teachers, Tom, so we're very respectful of the community, of our community support when we're out marching. We're not blocking traffic, those kinds of things. But this week, uh, day before yesterday, a group of teachers stormed into the Oregon Convention Center and marched inside that building with signs. Uh, it was very peaceful, no damage, but starting to get a little spicy. And yesterday afternoon, there was a student voices rally near downtown Portland with student speakers. But at that same time, hundreds of teachers showed up and picketed outside of the superintendent's condo in Northwest Portland in the Pearl District. Um, and there have been a group of, of teachers that have also been protesting outside of the homes of two other PPS district leaders this week. And actually, these actions are prompting the district to uh, potentially take legal action over what the district is calling unfair labor practices. Uh, we're waiting to see how that potential lawsuit plays out right now, but uh, our group of teachers personally does not believe that these actions at all in any way constitute any lawsuit. Um, I'm a teacher at Benson High School in Portland, and I'm in a pretty unique position um, because Benson is currently being remodeled. Uh, our school campus has been under construction for two years. Now, during this remodel, we're staged at a different high school campus temporarily, um, and this temporary campus has been neglected for decades. Um, I've got water leaking through the roof in my classroom, dripping on students every time it rains. Um, asbestos tiles are falling and dangling from the ceilings. We have rice, <laughs> rats and mice in the classroom every day. I have a little mouse that comes out at 3.45 after the students leave and runs around the classroom every single day. Uh, the temperature in the classroom is uncontrollable. We had to shut down uh, our summer program over the summer because it was just too hot, not safe for students. And these conditions are in part causing our student population to go down at Benson High School. Yeah. Um, and so this week, our group of Benson students went to protest at the Benson campus, which is currently under construction. And we had some of the construction workers walking off the job with us in solidarity. And I actually have a friend that works on an HVAC unit uh, doing some of the construction there and walk off the job with us. And now the construction team is saying that they are going to do a complete shutdown of that construction project on Wednesday if we don't get a deal reached by Wednesday. Wow, remarkable stuff. Uh, Jacob, I've only got uh, 25 seconds left here, but um, it's, it seems that this is part of a much larger uh, movement uh, nationwide, is it not? Uh, Tom, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's tough to hear you, bud, but, um, you know, uh, we're, we're asking uh, folks to go over to the, the union website, uh, pdxteachers.org, and mm -hmm. there there's uh, instructions on how listeners can chime in and send letters to the school board to show them, uh, to, to get them to show up at the bargaining table. 
Um, and we're just asking for more of the existing funds to be put down at the school level and increase and better the student experience. We need more teachers, I more staff, limit class sizes. Jacob, I'm sorry we're, we're out of time, but I, you know, I, I totally get it. Thank you. Thank you so much for filling us in and bringing us up to date on this, and good luck with what's going on. That's an amazing story of what you're experiencing in your own classroom. Jacob Dean Patterson. Thank you, Jacob. We'll be back. It's uh, 57 minutes past the hour. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Is corporate ethics an oxymoron? Do you have to be a jerk to be a successful CEO? Is exploitation the only path to profit? The good news is that many companies, big and small, in the food economy are blazing a different path through Wall Street's jungle of greed, demonstrating that money and morality can be compatible. Texas supermarket chain HEB, for example, has drawn an intense loyal customer base by, one, investing in good wages and benefits for employees, two, showing up in such emergencies as pandemics, hurricanes, freezes, to give essential supplies and hands-on help, and three, being an involved and supportive neighbor to the hundreds of unique communities it serves. Also, Maine Grains is relocalizing the business of milling grain by working with local farmers who had been abandoned by global grain marketers. They're producing flowers from heritage grains, boosting the local economy in the process. Then there's Bob's Red Mill, which also mills its products from diverse natural grains, and it's 100% employee-owned. These are part of a rising business alternative to the selfish profiteering ethic of Fortune 500 titans. Called Certified B Corporations, they definitely exist to make a profit, but they're equally focused on having a positive social impact, prioritizing fair wages, environmental protections, and healthy communities as core elements of their missions, even making those goals legal requirements of their corporate charter. This is Jim Hightower saying Ben and & Jerry's and New Belgium Brewery are just a couple more of some 3,800 other businesses now other businesses now organized as B Corps. Though not pretending to be perfect, they're at least striving to be more than money grubbers, instead trying to contribute to the common good. For more information, go to bcorporation.net. You're listening to X-Ray FM. That's KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1887. That was the day that Louis Ling died in prison while awaiting execution for his alleged role in a bombing at a workers' rally at Haymarket Square in Chicago the year before. Lewis was born in Germany. His father worked for a lumber mill. One day, while trying to clear a log jam, his father fell into an icy river. Although Lewis's father lived, he could no longer carry the same workload. The company fired him despite his 20 years of service. Lewis began to question a labor system that would let this happen. He became a carpenter's apprentice. Lewis then traveled to Switzerland, where he became acquainted with anarchist worker groups. Finally, in 1885, Lewis made his way to the United States and Chicago. There, he joined the Carpenters and Joiners Union. 
he became an outspoken advocate for the cause of the eight-hour workday. The movement had great success in Chicago, and on May 1st or May Day, thousands marched in the streets for the eight-hour cause. When a bomb was thrown at a workers' rally three days later, the backlash against the labor movement was swift and brutal. Eight men, including Louis Ling, stood trial and were convicted despite a lack of evidence tying them to the bombing. Louis Ling and four others were sentenced to death by hanging. But the day before the sentence was to be carried out, Louis lit a cigar in his prison cell. The cigar was packed with explosives. The explosion left Lewis in agony for hours before he finally died. Some believe he committed suicide rather than die at the hands of the legal system. Others believe he was murdered. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Stable homes and strong families are some of the most significant factors when considering a child's future. For the 7,000 children experiencing foster care in Oregon today, the pathway to self-fulfillment and stability can be complicated, but it's not hopeless. Kinship House is a Portland nonprofit investing in bright futures for children in foster care. We provide mental health therapy and advocacy, helping children and families heal from childhood trauma so they can experience the joys of childhood. Kinship House is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide. Learn more at GiveGuide.org. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Between 2016 and 2018, more than 2 million people in Somalia fled their homes, finding refuge elsewhere within their country. Some said they left because of violent conflict. Even more said they left because of drought. We know that Somalia experienced a severe drought since 2016. That's Lisa Thelheimer of Oxford University. To better understand how hot-dry conditions contributed to internal displacement, she analyzed roughly three years of weather data. She found that a reduction in precipitation from about two inches a month to zero led to a four-fold increase in the number of people who relocated, and a small increase in monthly temperatures, just a few degrees more than the average for that time of year, led to up to 10 times more displaced people. She also identified a lag time of about three months between a big decrease in rain and people's relocation. So it takes people really three months to say like, no, we cannot take it anymore. We have to leave. We have no other choice. So the study suggests that governments and humanitarian groups can anticipate increases in migration. And by acting early to support vulnerable people, they could help ensure that fewer have to flee. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. X-Ray FM is supported by Slingshot Lounge. Located in southeast Portland on the corner of 56th and Foster, Slingshot Lounge offers an expansive game room, scratch cocktails, and a craft kitchen with a full menu until 2 a.m. Happy hour available weekdays from 3 to 7, and brunch weekends from noon to 4. Slingshot Lounge, decentralizing Portland since 2007. Support for X-Ray FM comes from P-Town Couriers, LLC, a local bicycle food delivery company delivering to the Portland metro area in an hour or less. More information and a list of local eateries they work with can be found at pdxccc.com. X-Ray FM would like listeners to know about NAMI Multnomah, our local affiliate for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. NAMI Multnomah's mission is to improve the quality of life 
for people with mental illness and their families through support, education, and advocacy. They empower voices often overlooked, providing a platform for change through free peer-led programs, support groups, and advocacy initiatives that foster community mental health and stand against stigma. NAMI Multnomah is proud to join other local nonprofits in this year's Give Guide under the Human Services category. More information at giveguide.org. Support for X-Ray FM comes from the Hollywood Theater, Portland's nonprofit historic movie theater, showing classic, contemporary, and cult films every night of the week. Located at Northeast Sandy Boulevard in the heart of the Hollywood District. Showtimes and event listings at hollywoodtheater.org. Support for X-Ray FM comes from North Coast Pinball, Nahalem's Little Pinball Sanctuary. Located on Highway 101 next to North Coast Mudworks. North Coast Pinball offers monthly tournaments and a selection of games from the 1970s to the present. Learn more at northcoastpinball.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome to the third hour of our program. Uh, The uh, U.S. Census Bureau says that the world population passed 8 billion this month. Uh, the uh, the UN had said it had happened a little earlier than this, just a few months earlier, um, but uh, actually last year, um, ten months ago. But the global median age is now 32, but it is rising. Um, birth rates are going down in a number of countries, but eight billion people. You know, all of human history, from the first time humans. You know, fully modern Homo sapiens sapiens, people like you and me were walking around loose in, in Africa three, 300,000 years ago. From then until the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, all of that time, all of that span of human history, it took all that time to go from basically zero or, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand to a quarter billion to a 250 million humans on the planet. And we were, 2,000 years ago, we had basically... Uh, infiltrated every single continent on earth and yet our population was only a quarter of a billion we hit our first billion people the year that Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated as president 1800 or elected president 1800 that was our first 1 billion so it took us 300,000 years to get 1 billion people our second billion people only took 130 years Roughly around the time that Franklin Roosevelt was sworn into office, the world population was 2 billion people. So the first billion, 300,000 years, second second billion, and that, you know, that takes us us up to the year uh, 1800. Second billion, about 130 years. The third billion only took 30 years. We hit 3 billion people on Earth when Jack Kennedy was sworn in in 1960. The fourth billion took only 14 years, 1974. The fifth billion took only 13 years, 1987. The sixth billion took about 13 or 14 years, it took us into the 1990s. And now we're up to the eighth billion, now we're up to eight billion. What made the difference between that slow population growth leading up to 1800, where we finally hit one billion people? And from 1800 to today, where over a 230-year period, we have added seven more billion people to the planet. What made the difference? Ancient sunlight. 
We started in a in a really aggressive way in the in the 1800s, in the 1700s, really, but in in a in a big way in the early 1800s. Started uh, worldwide, human beings started using fossil fuels. I call it ancient sunlight because this is uh, sunlight energy that was captured by plants millions and millions of years ago and stored underground for millions of years as coal, as oil, as methane, uh, what we call natural gas or what the industry likes to call natural gas, it's methane. And these, these products, these, these uh, fossil fuel products have enabled us to use the energy of the sun but the energy of the sun captured over millions of years. So we're right now, every single day, burning at least a million years worth of sunlight in this world. Is it any wonder that we're polluting our planet so rapidly and so badly? So this is, this eight billion milestone is, uh, you know, not a good thing <laughs> because we're running out of sunlight. I mean, it's not so much that we're running out of fossil fuels, we've, we've got plenty of them, but we're running out of the ability to burn them because of the pollution that it causes, because of the destruction to our environment, because of the global warming that it causes. We now have a couple of countries, you know, South Korea, China, Spain, the United States that have fairly low birth rates. And then you've got very high fertility birth rates, uh, up to five children for family um, in uh, places like Israel, Ethiopia, and Papua New Guinea. So the goal, frankly, of the world should be to get our birth rate down to below replacement. And people say, oh, well, what are you going to do? You don't have enough, uh, you know, young people and all the old people, and it's going to be an economic catastrophe. No, not so much. I mean, we can see this from Japan. We can see this from other countries that have been in neg negative population growth, Spain, for a number of years. What happens is that um, your, your uh, resource allocation shifts. You, you still have the same net wealth in the country. But you have fewer people sharing it, which means everybody gets a little bit richer. It's actually, in my opinion, a good thing when population declines, not as the result of famine or you know, disease, but when population declines as a consequence of people using birth control or simply not having as many babies. So it's a good thing. Our geeky science for the day is uh, the, post, the post that I put up, our new post, uh, over on our new website for, for people with ADHD, for hunters in a far farmer's world, as it were. And uh, it's called hunterinafarmersworld.com is the name of the website. Hunterinafarmersworld.com. And I, I sent this out yesterday morning to our, to our mailing list. It's free, by the way, to sign up. Uh, it's titled, Only Do What You're Good At and Don't Feel Guilty About Not Being Able to Do What You're Bad At. And I tell the story of uh, when Louise and I lived in, Port, in, uh, excuse me, in Atlanta, and we uh, had started an ad agency in the late 1980s, 1987, I believe it was. And we had hired three or maybe four salespeople. And I was kind of the manager of the sales force. I'm, I'm a pretty good salesperson and I understand sales. But what we found was that the really good salespeople were classic ADHD hunters. They, they you know, they were really good at going out on the hunt and tracking down leads and signing people up and all that kind of stuff. They were terrible, though, at doing the follow-through, at dealing with the paperwork, at, you know, those kinds of things. And so what we did was we hired a farmer. I mean, literally ran an ad. We're looking for somebody who is super detail-oriented, who's obsessive about details, who likes doing paperwork, and can keep our sales staff on track. 
And that person so incredibly increased the productivity of our salespeople that they more than paid for that person and, and uh, you know, helped build our business. And then I, I back, uh, I, I've over the years collected stories from people with ADHD about how they got around their ADHD or even used it to their, to their benefit for success. I compiled a lot of these in a book uh, some years ago called ADD Success Stories. And I, I reprint one of those stories in the newsletter uh, over at hunterandafarmersworld.com from a woman in her 30s who uh, only found out about her ADHD uh, later in life and, and had always bought into this, uh, you know, women's jobs are farmers' jobs. The men get to be the, the salespeople and the police officers and the women have to be the secretaries and all this kind of stuff. And how miserable it had made her life. And then she figured out that, hey, I've got ADHD, I'm a hunter, and I can go looking for hunter jobs and found one and had great success at it. So check it out. It's hunterandafarmersworld.com. I think you'll find it interesting. So that's it for me for the day in terms of news stories and things to share with you. Let's find out what's on your mind. It is, after all, Anything Goes Friday. Jill in Lamar, Colorado. Hey, Jill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Hey, Jill. Um, sorry, my head's in a spreadsheet while I was listening. And um, my question is, in the event that one of the presidential candidates after the convention, after they have been selected by each party's convention, if that candidate um, be, died or became incapacitated, um, what, who's, would the vice president's name be on the ticket? It's up the to the party. It's up to the party. Oh. They could, they could hold another primary. I mean, you know, there are obviously time considerations. You know, if this was a month before the election, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the decisions that would be made are probably going to be different than if it's five months or six months from the election. Um, I, I think mm -hmm. most of the primaries are, are going to be in the spring and summer of next year. Um, but uh, it's up to the parties to decide who's going to. And, and now some of them have rules about this. I, I frankly, off the top of my head, don't know what those rules are. Um, but but I, I guarantee the parties also have the ability to get around those rules if they think that because of the timing of the uh, death or incapacity of uh, a candidate, be it you know Trump, Biden, or anybody else, um, you know what do they do about it? So sorry, I, I don't have a and, specific answer for you. But. And if if Trump had a conviction after the Republican convention, would that also have? No, there is there is no law that says that you can't run for office if you've if you're convicted of a felony. In fact, Eugene Debs, Bernie Sanders' hero, the guy who uh, got thrown in jail because of the Alien and Sedition Act by Woodrow Wilson back because of his opposition to World War One, uh, he campaigned for president from from a jail cell and got over a million votes. Oh, oh my! Yeah, so it's been done before. Oh my! Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for clearing that up for me. Sure enough. Good to hear from you, Jill, and thank you so much for the call. And, and you know, let's hope that, uh, at, at, at least on the Democratic side, that nothing... I don't want to wish, you know, ill on anybody, frankly. I think Donald Trump deserves to get beat, you know, fair and square. <laughs> and I think that's going to happen. I really do. I think that if, he, if he's the Republican Party's nominee, that it's all over for them. But, you know... Knock wood. I thought that in 2016, too. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the True People's Media, the Tom Hartman Program, back with your calls on Anything Goes Friday in just a moment. 
And welcome back. Anne in Mamaroneck, New York. Hey, Anne, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Hi Free there. Speech. Well, hey. I have to get back to my original thoughts because now I have um, post-its all over as <laughs> I listened on the phone. Okay. Um, the last caller actually echoed something that's been in my head, but I do want to talk about this. You know, I've been listening since the Air America days, so obviously I'm someone who's going to vote, vote Democratic no matter what. But I have three 20-something-year-old daughters, who, and I am also very disappointed that Joe Biden decided to run again. I love him. I think he's been doing a great job. But I keep thinking back to what someone said about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I also think about Ronald Reagan. You know, I would like to see him go out. For all of his wonderful work over the years, I want to make sure that he goes out on a high. And I watch him, and all of the clips that you see, when he walks from a plane, he walks like a very old man with his mouth open and his head down. He looks very old. Yeah, I know. When he tries to explain what he's done, he doesn't inspire. When I listen to Wes Moore or Gavin Newsom talk about all that, you know, all that he's accomplished and what his um, platform is, you feel inspired. But when I listen to Joe Biden, I'm not. And also, Kamala Harris was originally my first choice, but I have been disappointed. Um, I listened to an interview on Face the Nation when, uh, what's her name, Margaret Brennan, was trying to get her to say, you know, she kept talking about codifying Roe, and Margaret Brennan said, well, what do you mean by that? What does codifying Roe mean? And she just kept repeating Mm -hmm. that they would codify Roe, and I felt like I was listening to a toddler, and I almost threw something at my TV. Yeah, I, you know, I think I'm, many of us would have nervous. preferred to have a, an actual Republic or Democratic primary. I, you know, I, I would have been very happy to put all the primary candidates on the on the air here. Um, I, you know, I think that Gavin Newsom had a, you know, has a, a very good shot at it or had a good shot at it. But, you know, that's not the decision that Joe Biden made. And he is the president and he is the head of the party. So this is what we have. Ian. so what are you going to do about it? I know. I know. And I. It, Complaining about it doesn't do anything other than hurt, hurt no, Biden's it chances. No, not But I, I think they have to go after the younger people because they're the ones that are getting so disappointed. When I see these polls, mm-hmm. I don't think they're reflecting what the younger voters are interested in. I mean, they do have to be p- talking about climate change much more so than they are. They have to remind people about the Supreme Court. Well, Joe and, Biden you know, signed the most aggressive chi- climate change legislation in history. Yes, he's he's eliminated that. student debt for hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, th- this stuff just gets no publicity. His his accomplishments are extraordinary. Um, yes, you know, he's he's inarticulate. Him. He stutters, and yes, he he walks like an old man. But um, he's he's doing good. I he's doing really good, and uh, so I, I think that that's the point that we just need to be making. Uh, I just I, I don't see any is Ruth Bader Ginsburg again. <laughs> yeah, I just don't see any value in saying that. It's yeah. not going to change anything. Um, All it's going to do is cause people yeah. to feel discouraged. I, you know, I, I, I get it. You know, I get Republicans calling into this program all the time saying this by, you know, by way of trying to discourage Democratic voters. Um, I'm not accusing you of that. But, uh, you know, it just I, I, I just don't see any value in it. man. I'm sorry. So okay. I'm, I'm right. going to move along. Uh, 20 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. Stay tuned.
Missed my opening rant today? It's usually published over at HartmanReport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free. Check it out, HartmanReport.com. Welcome back. 21 minutes past the hour. Picking up your calls here on Anything Goes Friday. Chuck in New Orleans. Hey, Chuck, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call this morning, man. Sure. Um, I, I, there's so many things to talk about, and I hate to do this, but I have to fact check something you said yesterday, brother. Uh, you told a caller that no one is out there calling for the defunding of police, and that is not accurate. Every Republican is running on defunding any law enforcement agency that would hold their dear leader to account. Oh, you're right. And they want to like defund the FBI. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, and, and the DOJ and uh, anybody else, you yeah. know, anyone else that would hold their dear leader to account. I stand corrected, Chuck. I, I stand corrected. Thank <laughs> you. So uh, other than that, man, have a great weekend. I really enjoy your show. Thank you so much. Okay, sure. Yeah, good to hear from you, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, Ronald in Gary, Indiana. Hey, Gary, hey, Ronald, what's on your mind today? How you doing, Tom? Thank Good. you very much for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure you. I, when I'm talking, I'm talking Project 2025. I know you're aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'd like to know how close are, the, are these people getting? Because this is uh, founded by I think the Heritage Foundation has got this going. And, yeah. And how, how close are they to getting this implemented? Is it already in motion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've they've uh, got a list of over twenty or thirty thousand uh, people that they want to use to stack and and pack the the, the next Republican administration. Um, they're they're you know drawing in the most right wing and fascist people they can find. Um, right. they, the Washington Post argued that uh, in a piece on S Sunday, I think it was last week. Uh, said that the Insurrection Act was part of Project 2025. The Heritage Foundation has said, no, that's not the case. Um, but other than that, uh, everything you've heard about it is probably just as grim as it sounds. As far as the timetable is concerned, how, how, how close are we? Is this being, is being, well, if there's being, a, they're, they're all set to go. They can pull the trigger anytime. If there's a Republican elected to the White House, then Project 2025 goes into effect, whether, you know. Right. Uh, right. And, and frankly, if it doesn't happen in 2025, they'll do it in 2029 or 20, what, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, they, they do it after the 2028 election. So in effect, we have to keep uh, uh, electing the Democratic presidents, then, right? <laughs> Until the Republican okay. Party decides to uh, to abandon fascism, yes. Wow, this is this is this is something else, uh, yeah. uh, Tom. No, it's grim this stuff. Is, this is, yeah, this is really this is really really bad. Uh, I was I was trolling uh, uh, YouTube and I see that uh, Trump, Joe Manchin, DeSantis, and Ramaswamy already have been. Uh, 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 brought into this net, so I, I, th these are these are these are top guys in the Republican Party. So, yeah. uh, well, Joe Manchin, well, he's a, he's really a Republican. So, yeah. uh, what can I say? For all practical yeah. purposes, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. Yep, Ronald. Thanks yeah. for the call. I'm I'm sorry I don't have better all news right. for you. Good talking to you. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Bill in LaSalle, Michigan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Thanks for taking my call, Tom that uh, I love your show, I try to listen to it every day. Thank you. That, uh, But I might have missed one thing, and it was Rachel Maddow's book, Prequel. I don't know if you've read it or discussed it. I haven't show, read it. I'm, I, I, it's based on her, uh, her podcast series, 
uh, you know, where she went okay. back and looked at the fascist movement in the United States in the 1930s, and I listened to the podcast series. So okay. I, I haven't. I would highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah, but what I wanted to talk about that uh, was uh, anti-Semitism in this country, which also is in her book. Mm-hmm. That uh, and there's another book called The Chosen Few that uh, it's from about uh, 11 or 12 years ago. That the Chosen Few, how education shaped that uh, Jewish history. That uh, I don't know if you've ever read it. I've not. But it's an excellent history that uh, from uh, the year 70 in the common year to 1492. And the authors were going to follow up with another book, uh, and I have not read that yet or heard of it. That, uh, but in ancient times, early uh, common era, the leaders of the Jewish community decided that you cannot be Jewish unless you're educated at at least to approximately a fourth grade education. Mm-hmm. That uh, the rest of the world at that time were agriculture and not very educated. Right, and, and for, so uh, for uh, several hundred years, the Catholic Church actually outlawed reading. Only priests were allowed to learn how to read. Uh, right up until the 1500s. Right. right. That, uh, well, this goes to 1492. Yeah. That, uh, so the Jewish population that uh, became very good with numbers. Yeah. That, and that since no one else could handle income and things, that uh, the princes and kings and that yeah. would hire Jewish. No, I get. I, I, I got. It. I'm familiar with the story. Bill, thank you for the call. I'm sorry we're out of time. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. Pro tip: When you call into a into a talk radio show, always make your biggest point first, and then use your backup. Then fill in with your backup information afterwards. We'll be right back. Welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the, from the book Screwed, The Undeclared War Against the Middle Class and What We Can Do About It, a book I wrote in 2006 but is frankly more relevant today than it was back then. Uh, reading from page 11. There's a battle waging today in America that will decide the future of the middle class. On the one side are those like Jefferson who believe that a free people can govern themselves and have the right to organize their government to create a strong middle class which will in turn keep the government democratic, small d. On the other side are those like Thomas Hobbes who believe that only a small elite can and should govern and that the people should be willing to pay the price of poverty in exchange for security. Those who don't want democracy understand that a middle class will always work to create democracy, which is why they are so opposed to middle class creating government policies like free public education, limits to the concentration of uh, ownership in the media, and social safety nets like universal health care and social security. They understand that such policies have and always will bring about a strong and vibrant middle class, which will in turn both demand and create a more democratic society against small d. Who are these people who want to undermine the middle class? They often call themselves conservatives. 
But those people are not true conservatives. They don't want to conserve or protect the America the founders gave us. I call them cons because they're conning America. My dad was a staunch Republican all his life, but he didn't believe that a small elite should rule America. He was glad the government provided safety nets like Social Security and Medicare and made unionization possible. My dad and most of the other real conservatives I've known believed in the middle class and believed in democracy. The battle we face in America today is not between liberal and conservative, nor is it between big D Democrat and Republican. The battle we face today is between those who want to protect our democratic heritage, small d, and the cons who want to create an America that benefits only a small elite organized around corporate power and inherited wealth. The t there are two types of cons who have worked together to screw the middle class. I call them the predator cons and the true believer cons. Predator cons are simply greedy. They use politics and or philosophy as a cover for their theft of our common resources and as a rationalization for their growing wealth in the face of growing social poverty, societal poverty and inequality. They're not conservatives in any true sense. They are not interested in conserving American values or even in keeping America wealth, American wealth in America. They're the ones who ship jobs overseas, lobby for tax breaks from Congress, fight against the inheritance tax, and reincorporate their companies offshore to avoid paying U.S. corporate taxes. The Predator Con's rationalization for their obscene pileup of wealth is that they're simply playing the game by the existing rules. And that's true to a large extent, except that they're also the ones who bought and paid for the politicians who set up the rules for them. They've conned America into believing that they care about the American economy when all they care about is making money for themselves. A great example of a predatory con is NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. These agreements lower wages for American workers. They do not create well-paying jobs in America. They create record trade deficits. Cons don't even try to argue that free trade agreements are good for America anymore. Arguments like these, such as the Central American Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA, are passed now by a single vote in the Senate in 2005, only because corporate America needs them to reap tremendous profits from the low wages they extract in non-unionized, non-democratic, and socially disorganized countries. Predator cons succeed in passing these agreements by threatening to withhold campaign funds from anyone who dares to oppose them. It's an old game that the robber barons of the 19th century knew well how to play. The second type of con is perhaps even more dangerous than the predators. They're the true believers. Just as true believers in communism brought about the death of tens of millions in Russia from the time of the Bolshevik Revolution until the fall of the Berlin Wall, so too the true believers in laissez-faire capitalism believe that if only government would go away, everything would be just fine. Employers would become benevolent, employees would become enthusiastic, and bureaucratic inefficiencies would just vanish. These so-called free marketers aren't bothered by the consolidation of companies or the loss of competition that happens when markets are unregulated. Like Thomas Hobbes, the true believers assume that society will run best when run by the small elite that ended up on the top. They believe in corporatocracy, the view that an economic aristocracy benefits the working class because wealth will trickle down from above to below. Ronald Reagan was a true believer. He didn't understand economics, and the simple notions of self-sufficiency and a pioneering spirit appealed to him. He asked, in essence, why would somebody want to regulate a business? Wouldn't it eventually always do what is best without regulation? What Reagan and his followers failed to understand was that business will not always do what's best for society. In fact, the fundamental goal of business, to maximize assets and profits while externalizing costs and liabilities, is often destructive to the public good. This becomes particularly obvious when business owners do not live or otherwise participate in the same society and culture as their customers. 
A small business owner can't run sewage out his door or pay his workers below a living wage because he has to face his next-door neighbor and his next-door neighbor's kid who may want to work in his shop. Same is not true, however, for multinational corporations. Executives of large corporations don't live in the same society as the people who work for them or who, who live next door to their factories. As a result, the legacy of unregulated big business and the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few, that legacy is pollution, worker exploitation, cuts to workers' safety, and the bestowing of profits to the company's elite while cutting benefits to the company's rank and file. This is uh, the book Screwed. From international trade policy to immigration policy to housing, we've got all kinds of topics. The wars between Republicans and Democrats, the Republican efforts to induce fascism in the United States. A great selection of opinions will be found over at heartlandreport.com. From Los Angeles to Columbia, South Carolina, from Birmingham, Alabama to Baltimore, universal basic income programs are chalking up proof after proof of their viability. Basically, just giving people, low-income people, poor people, somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month, no strings attached, is lifting people out of poverty, getting them back on track, getting them into solid middle-class jobs, helping their children tremendously. This works. Now, we don't have to do UBI in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national health care program. Health expenses are whacking a lot of low-income people. We're the only country, developed country in the world that doesn't have free college education. Education expenses are whacking people. There's a lot we could do. We can subsidize housing. We can subsidize food. We do that with food stamps. We could expand it. There's a lot we could do to, to, to benefit from this. There's a whole report about that over at HartmanReport.com. Check it out. 35 minutes past the hour. Picking up your calls here on Anything Goes Friday. Clay in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Hey, Clay, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey, Clay. Uh, so, Donald Trump is the poster child for the Electoral College. You mean so, for getting rid of the Electoral the elect College? No. Well, yeah, that. But since we have it, the Electoral College was intended to be able to keep out the nuts that people might vote for that didn't realize that they were nuts. So let's use the college to keep out the nut. Yeah. You know, get electors to refuse to put you know, vote for him. I think you're absolutely intended. I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, this is let me just uh, share this with you. Um, this is a letter that Alexander Hamilton wrote to George Washington. Um, this was written in um, 1792, August 18, 1792. George Washington was president at the time. He wrote, When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principle of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, 
it may be justly suspected that his object is to throw things in confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. The truth unquestionably is that the only path to a subversion of the Republican system of our country is by flattering the prejudices of the people and exciting their jealousies and apprehensions to throw affairs into confusion and bring on civil commotion. Tired at length of anarchy or want of government, they may take shelter in the arms of monarchy for repose and security. Alexander now, I didn't Hamilton. know he knew Donald Trump. Ah, exactly, exactly. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's the poster child, and that's what I'm saying. 1792, yep, I, you nailed it, Clay. Clay, I got to run, but thank you uh, for that. William in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, William, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Tom. Um, I uh, wanted to say that what happened to Israel on uh, October 7th is horrible, no doubt. And I obviously understand why they they wanted to go after Hamas. It's quite obvious. But I cannot understand why they didn't carry out a ground invasion by itself from the get-go, given the advanced capabilities their army has, thanks to us. And I feel like they didn't really need to carry out the aerial bombardment that they have done over the last month, which has caused, as you know, thousands of needless and unnecessary civilian deaths. Their, their, their aerial targeting, I don't think is that advanced. And they knew Thomas from the beginning had already moved their capabilities within the tunnels they have. And, you know, and the last thing I was gonna say from the start, the advanced, very advanced IDF ground forces could have moved in on the ground without aerial bombardment and taking care of Hamas and, the, and their tunnels. What's your take on that? You know, I'm not a military tactician and I've never been to Gaza. Uh, I have been to Israel a number of times, but uh, I, I just, I, I don't know, William. I mean, I, it, it's tough to second guess this stuff. My, my guess, and this is purely a guess, is that they knew that uh, sending, sending you know, military forces into Gaza without um, first uh, softening it up, I guess, would be the phrase, uh, would lead right. to really, really high levels of uh, Israeli uh, soldier casualties, and they were unwilling to right. do that. But I, you know, I, I just don't know. I, I the the uh, the position that I took at the at the time was that you know Hamas has to be destroyed. Um, this this should not be just Israel's job. It should be an international coalition. We really uh, the whole reason why Hamas and Iran did this invasion in the first place, or one of the larger reasons, was because Israel was on the verge of signing a peace deal with Saudi Arabia, which would have right. put both Hamas and Iran into, you know, a very, very kind of negative position. It, w it, w it would have been a very bad thing for both Israel, for right. both Hamas and for Iran. And so they tried to blow up the deal. And sure enough, they did. They succeeded in it. Right. And, and, and frankly, I think if instead if uh, instead of the invasion, if Israel had reached out to Saudi Arabia and said, come help us now, you know, let's work together on this. I, you know, I have, maybe I'm being completely naive, but, but I, I, it just seems like it would have been a better, a better deal than, than, than uh, you know, just bombing the crap out of this, out of this uh, area and killing 10,000 people, you know, at least 4,000 children. Right. It has, right. uh, well, uh, it's right. turning the world well, against Israel, which is not the best thing for Israel. Right, and I agree with you that the IDF would have taken more casualties with that ground invasion. Uh, I can't agree with you more. Uh, 
but it, there would have been a there are a lot more uh, innocent civilian deaths that have occurred. Yeah, there would have um, been fewer. No, I get it. I mean, and yeah. total warfare is the very worst. I mean, I, I remember during the it Vietnam is. War, the the Americans who had to go down into the Vietnamese tunnels, and they called them tunnel rats, and and uh, you know it was the job that the small the smaller, shorter uh, soldiers, GIs, got stuck with. And uh, the right. stories, you read the stories of these guys who were in the tunnels, you know, the, the ones who survived, and they're just, just horrible. And these tunnels right. under Gaza are far more sophisticated. I heard yesterday that they estimate there's 500 kilometers of tunnel, you know, over 200 mm -hmm. miles of tunnels in an area that's 25 miles north and south and four miles east and west. That's crazy. But, uh, you know, we can, you know, being an armchair general is always easy. I, I just, I, I hope that they can, uh, the, that they can, uh, you know, come to a reasonable ceasefire. You know, Biden is leaning on them. The world opinion, public opinion is leaning on them. Um, uh, you know, it's just it's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. William, thank you for the call. John in uh, Center Fa Cedar Falls, Iowa. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I would like to uh, share some information about the history of Taiwan, because I lived there for many years, also spent a year in China back in the 80s, uh, so I speak Mandarin and all that. Uh -huh. um, there's a lot of misunderstanding, um, and I guess let me start by just re uh, recommending a book to everyone. It's called Formosa Betrayed, uh, 1965, by George Kerr, K-E-R-R. And this is in the public domain now, so you can read it online, mm -hmm. download a PDF, you know. Um, so the basic fact that I want to get across to people is that Taiwan <laughs> uh, was not a part of China until very recently. Uh, the original inhabitants, the aboriginal tribes, do not come from China. They came from the Malay Peninsula about 6,000 years ago. Um, and they're the minority and, population know, in Taiwan right now. They're the indigenous people, basically. And they've got their own problem yes. of discrimination against their, uh, against their own indigenous minority. I, I've been to Taiwan a couple of times, so I'm, I'm mm -hmm. you know, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, John. Uh, okay, well, uh, basically, they, some of these tribes were cannibalistic headhunters. So the idea of Han people living in China and Taiwan was, you know, they would have been eaten quite frankly. <laughs> well, 300 um, years ago. So, yeah, what happened was in the 1600s, some European uh, people, missionaries mostly, started establishing a foothold in, in Formosa, uh, what they called it at the time. And this, you know, their foothold allowed the first Chinese immigrants to come over as laborers. Uh. And so from 16... You know, in mid 1600s, basically, this was when the Ming Dynasty was being overrun by the Qing Dynasty in the mainland. So, mm -hmm. some refugees from that, you know, I guess you could say Ming loyalists, uh, established a foothold in Taiwan in the mid 1600s, uh, and they kind of fought, sort of similar to how Chiang Kai-shek fought against the mainland for a while. But they You're talking guerrilla warfare. Yeah, but in 1683, that was the ended, and China annexed Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even a province. They made it a province in the early 1800s, or mid-1800s. But uh, that lasted 203 years, I don't know, two years. Um, and in 1895, after the Sino-Japanese War, 
first one in the Treaty of Shimonoseki. China ceded Taiwan to Japan in perpetuity. So it was not like uh, Hong Kong or Macau yeah, Hong Kong was a 99-year lease. year lease. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and also in the uh, uh, aftermath of World War II, Taiwan's disposition was not laid out um, in the Treaty of San Francisco, 1952, which is the formal, you know, treaty. Taiwan's disposition is left open. Hmm. Um, you know, it had, you know, and you know, possession is nine tenths of Was law, that in so deference to China? It was given to China to, you know, our ally China, mm-hmm. ROC, was say, okay, you, you take care of it. And they did until 1947, and they, uh, you know, they had to flee the, because they lost the Civil War in the mainland, the KMT right. did. And, you know, that leads to the present day. But, um, you know, the idea, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, Taiwan's always been a part of China. Look, it's right there. It's 100 right. miles away, obviously. Right. But it's not, it's not like that at all. Like thank actually. you, John. Thank you for that. Thank you for the, uh, the history lesson. I, I, I was vaguely familiar with bits and pieces of that, having, having been there and having gone through the, that massive museum and the, and the side of the mountain there and all, all this other stuff. But um, that, that was great. John, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's 46 minutes past the hour. We'll be back with more of the news of the day uh, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's Anything Goes Weekend. Back with your calls in just a moment. back patsy in shelbyville texas hey patsy you're on the air what's up hi uh <clears throat> tom i just wanted to remark on um what the lady said before about biden's age and i get that 100 percent i'm 75 years old so i do understand but my thing is we just need to give him a chance and let him move through whatever it is he needs to move through. I do understand. But I think if we just give him the chance to go through the process, I think we'll all feel better about it. And I just wanted to say that. Not taking away from anybody, but just give him a chance to get through this process. I agree with you, Patsy. And and by the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was almost a decade older than Joe Biden. So, you know, uh, when she died, she was 87, Sean? Sean just looked it up, 87. Um, so uh, she's quite a bit older than him. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm not frankly worried about it. I, you know, the guy does Pilates mm-hmm. every day. He's 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 uh, he, he rides his bike. He's working out. He's he's in good shape. I mean, he's just he's just being careful when he walks. And I get that when you're 80 right. years old, you know, your bones aren't quite as resilient as they used to be. You don't want to fall. Um, and I tell him that all the time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I mean, you know, look what happened to uh, to Mitch McConnell when he fell and he was out of commission for three months. So, exactly. yeah. Okay, good point, uh, Patsy. Thank you. Uh, very, very well said. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's up? 
Hey, happy Friday, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Um, when I last talked to you uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, one of the points I uh, made concerned uh, President Biden losing Gen Z and millennial support uh, over his perceived indifference to the uh, situation in, Ga- in Gaza, the killing of civilians. Right. And unfortunately, and unfortunately, as we know, you know that negative perception has increased the last couple weeks. Yep. Um, and it's also shared by Arab Americans uh, who have been strong Democratic voters in key swing states like Michigan. Yep. Um, so, so Tom, I, I think the longer President Biden ignores these the concerns of these important voting blocks, the more he, he's risking his reelection chances. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, he should still be calling for a ceasefire, and at the very he least, is. demanding that. Well, he he is an outright, but um, at the very least, he he could be demanding that Netanyahu agrees to uh, a two-state solution mm-hmm. uh, before we send any more military aid there. I you agree. know that that'd be a good way of of keeping the conflict from spiraling um, into wider regional con- uh, war, and it would also improve his the president's approval ratings here at home. Good policy is good politics, and one other policy thing uh, to that point. You know, the president could really mollify youth voters if he bans all new licenses for LNG exports. And uh, Bill McKibben has an excellent new Substack piece about that. Mm. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, your thoughts, Tom? You know, isn't it time for the president to use our leverage to achieve a two-state solution as the end game? I completely agree. I absolutely do. And and, uh, this this failure to pursue a a two-state solution that's been, you know, the... The, uh, the calling card of, of uh, Likud and the right-wingers in Israel for years and years, uh, you know, in, in some ways, in part, brought us to this moment. Um, the, yeah. Again, not to justify what uh, Hamas did, there is no justification for it, but uh, you can, you could have predicted that something, some sort of terrible thing was gonna happen. You just can't keep people in an open-air prison all that long and, and not have people blow up in your face. It's just, uh, Jeff, spot on, thank you very much. It's uh, nine minutes before the hour. I'll be right back with you. Thanks so much for sharing our program and for reaching out to our stations and sponsors and letting them know that you're listening. It really means a lot to us. So a lot of people are wondering, why is it in America that we can't have nice things? Why don't we have, you know, the same things every other democracy has. Every other democracy in the world has a national health care system of some form, and everybody is covered. We don't. We've got 27 million uninsured people and over 100 million underinsured people. Why is that? Why is it that every other country in the world offers college education very inexpensively, if not for free, and for here you go to debt? Why is it that we've got our public schools crumbling and other, other countries are doing well? Why is it that we've got Medicare being taken apart by this Medicare Advantage scam and nobody will do anything about it? Well, it turns out the reason why has, it boils down to one thing, one Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, legalizing the bribery of our politicians. There's a whole rant about this over at at, uh, HartmanReport.com. I think you're going to find it very, very useful. Check it out. Patricia in Wooddale, Illinois. Hey, Patricia, what's up? 
Hi, Tom. Um, I just had to comment and disagree with uh, Anne and the the girl that you just talked a little while ago about uh, Trump and his age. I don't get it, and I don't understand. You mean Biden why and people- his age? Yes, I'm sorry, Biden. Yes, Biden at his age. I don't know why everybody has to concentrate on that, you know, so totally. And again, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she had very serious health issues she for had a cancer, long for time. God's sake. Yes, yes. He, he <laughs> Twice. didn't have anything like that. And why don't we start thinking about wisdom? Uh, age has wisdom. Yeah. With age brings wisdom. He has exhibited that all along the way. The man is brilliant. I agree. And it, it just upsets me so much that they're just constantly concentrating on his age. They don't have anything else, Patricia. The- if, if, there was any, if there was anything that he was doing that was a real screw-up, everybody would be pointing at it. They don't have anything, and so this is what they're obsessing on. Yes, this is true, and unfortunately, it's the Democrats as well, which I, really upsets me. I know. I'm. I'm not sure it's all the Dem. You know, it's. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure all the people talking about age are Democrats, and and I know well, that. True. Or, true. I, I believe that some of the people who call into this program and characterize themselves as Democrats aren't, but but it is. You know, it's. A, there are real Democrats who are expressing a concern about this, and. I'm like, get over it, you know? <laughs> yeah, Just get exactly, over it, damn it. Exactly. I'm 80 years old and still doing pretty good. There you and go, And still Patricia. went to my dad for advice when he was 92 years old. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to be said about age being a good thing. There you go. I love it. I love it. Patricia, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Nice <laughs> thank to hear you. from Bye-bye. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Scotty in Seattle. Hey, Scotty, what's on your and mind? I stuttered. The teacher said... That's just... Uh, that's not going to work. Uh, Diane in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hey, Diane, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, hello. Um, I'd like to know if there is such a thing as a Project 25 for dummies or cliff notes to it. There was a good piece about it in the, uh, in the Washington Post last Sunday. Um, there have been okay. a couple of pieces that have been written in uh, progressive media. Uh, I wrote a piece about it, actually. If you, if you plug in my name in Project 2025 in quotes, you'll, you'll probably find it fairly easily. It's over at HartmanReport.com. That was maybe three or four weeks ago. I need to write another one. Um, but there, okay. you, you know, use a search engine. You shouldn't have any problem finding them. There's, yeah. it's not a secret. Okay. No one has the time to read 900 yeah. pages. And I, I get it. Yeah. No. There's, there's some good summaries of it. Uh, there's some very good summaries okay. of it out there. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks, so Diane. you can tell people what they're in for. There you Thank go. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Scott in Burien, Washington. Hey, Scott. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. You're on Karen Hunter's show about four weeks ago, and you talked about why. Um, Biden's economic message is not resonating in the polls and what have you. Uh, simple, you know, I like Biden. It's because things are so expensive, particularly rent. Yeah. How can that message be contracted? I mean, you know, counterpointed. We need to do something about the housing unaffordability crisis in America. We just passed um, a, the threshold where the average neighborhood in America now, rent is 40% of the average income. Whenever rent goes above 34% of income, you start seeing homelessness appear. And, and for every point above 34%, you see a, a similar one-point increase in homelessness. So, you know, it, we've got a, a society-wide problem here that has to do with this. The, the, the main thing that is driving this increase in, in housing prices is that uh, since 2010, since the great crash, 
when Wall Street got into real estate in a big way. Um, one quarter of all houses bought in the United States last year were bought by institutional investors, Wall Street hedge funds, foreign investors, and many of those homes are left empty. We have more empty homes in America than we have homeless people. So we got to do something about it. Scott, I got to run. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethergood, Pat Hoyt, Patrick Hoyt, uh, uh, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jay LeBlanc, Al Gorilla Rhythm, Jeremy Peterson, Mark Thoman, Thoman uh, Connor Arroyo, and Carna Verde. Thank you to all of you for helping make this program work. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. I'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Our local newspapers are being merged, purged, shrunk, shut down, and looted by Wall Street profiteers. Yet, there's good news. In the town... This is Ross Beach, host of Alive with Pleasure, with this week's edition of the X-Ray FM Concert Calendar, a highly abridged list highlighting some of the many live music shows in the Portland area for the weekend starting on this Friday, November the 10th. Friday night brings us Joan Osborne at the Aladdin Theater, Ms. Lauren Hill at the Moda Center, Beach Fossils at the Roseland, Genesis Owusu at the Star Theater, and Stephanie Schneiderman at the Laurel Thirst. Then on Saturday, Dizzy comes to Polaris Hall, a giant dog will be at Dante's, Aiden Bissett will be at Holocene, Scott Yoder plays the Fixin' Two, actors will be at the Coffin Club, and Margaret Glaspie and Cat Clyde come to Mississippi Studios. Then on Sunday night, local band The Prairie Vendors has a CD release show at the Kenton Club, Tally's plays the show bar, ZZ Ward will be at Revolution Hall, and Fever Ray comes to the Roseland Theater. On Monday, Liz Fair will be at Revolution Hall, and St. Paul and the Broken Bones come to the Crystal Ballroom. Then on Tuesday, the Linda Lindas will be at Revolution Hall, Noah Gunderson comes to the Lab Theater, and Joy Oladokun comes to the Crystal Ballroom. On Wednesday, we'll have Creature Party at Holocene, No Name will be at the Roseland Theater, and the new pornographers come to Revolution Hall. Then Thursday night, local band Lawrence Elk has a release show at the Fixin' 2, Simmel will be at Revolution Hall, Kuinka comes to the Get Down, and Win plays at the Wonder Ballroom. If you're just learning the name of some of these artists like I did this week, I've got good news. I'll be spinning many of them on my radio show, Alive with pleasure this Friday afternoon from 2 to 4 and every Friday afternoon as part of these fantastic Friday afternoon